This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. And welcome back. We are here. Uh, we just did an episode yesterday. I mean, if you're following along and keeping up to date, uh, this is an evergreen thing, so maybe you're not, but we literally just did an episode on Marilyn Monroe, uh, and we are back in the saddle once again, talking about somebody very different in many ways, and I think we're also going to find in a couple ways similar, maybe, mm. maybe that's a stretch, we'll find out, <laughs> and that is uh, Jorge Luis Borges. Um, and we are joined once again by uh, the great Aldous Asterian of the Force of Symbols podcast, once again, honoring us with his presence. Uh, oh, you're too kind. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, I love coming on Art of Darkness. It's, we, it's all my We pleasure. love having you. We love having you. So <laughs> this is this is good. Every time we do one of these episodes, it's it's a it's a banger. So I'm um, very much looking forward to this. Um Let's see what what housekeeping we got to do, Kevin. Oh, if you are catching this and you want to get in on the book club, um, April sixteenth. That's twenty twenty three. So if it's in the future, you missed it. Sorry. We are reading uh, fiction fictions or fictiones by Borges. It's a collection of short stories. Uh, join us, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Um, you know, if you get in at that $5 level, not only do you get access to that, to that zoom hangout where we, um, we just talk about books. You guys join us. We talk, you talk. It's a great time. Uh, we keep the recording for afterwards in case you missed it. Um, and you also get the after dark, the right 20 and, uh, to 30 minute bonus episode per episode. Per episode, extra content, book club access, and the great Abby Lucas, uh, director, 
of uh, her own fame, but also mm. from our Bolaño episode, yeah. will be joining us to talk about Borges. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a good time. And with the book club, you choose your level of commitment. So if you're like, I don't know, I don't know if I want to talk to these knuckleheads, you can just uh join patreon and then mm-hmm. hear it after the fact too oh yeah uh, no, no nothing nothing uh no obligations by any means but even if you don't want to join you can listen you can listen to the one afterward the, the, that's, the that's what i mean yeah they can listen to the recording right another fun yeah. way uh to engage with the pod is in the telegram t.me slash yeah. art of yeah. dark pod and that's growing every day we see a new face and mm-hmm. it's a very lively fun chat you can just mm-hmm. about imagine what 100 plus people interested in art of darkness might get up to talking about <laughs> yeah yeah it's a good time yeah. it's a good time mm-hmm. it really well, is yeah yeah well let's get into it kevin wait wait hang wait, on before we wait, do i just what? have to say last night right after recording maryland we had this mm-hmm. uh, tremendous blizzard up here in minnesota and i cut it right down to the wire and raced across town to go see friend of the pod blake hammond the great oh yeah stand up do stand up mm-hmm. here in minnesota and we had a great time. Blake has been on a couple episodes. We'll bring him back when we have another comedian to to cover. Norm, uh, he did with us, and then Bill Hicks. And mm-hmm. great guy. I can confirm he does exist IRL. And uh, I know he's a listener to the pod, and he's got a long yeah. road trip ahead of him. So oh, cool. shout out to Blake shout if you're out, out there Blake, and you're man. listening. Good to see you, man. That was a lot of fun. My friends had a really good time, and I'm glad we were able to get you back to your residence uh safely last evening very good as it got real did it oh it was like a blizzard yeah Yeah. oh yeah and i'm like i'll get you back no worries i got you i was like this like midwestern you know i'm like i'm from north dakota this is nothing i got you so i'm sure you guys know the movie groundhog day right yeah oh yeah Yeah. the the line that keeps running through my head is when he's like there is no way that this winter is ever going to end as long as that groundhog keeps seeing his shadow right <laughs> that's what it feels like this winter yeah yeah it's, it's endless <laughs> all right you got yeah, one more you got one, one more in you so sun will come out tomorrow though so mm-hmm. all right hey. Brad, now you now we can get into it now, now I'll ask house, you the housekeeping is settled yeah kevin what do you know about jorge luis borges uh woefully little i'm okay. familiar uh, obviously he's a spanish language writer south american uh, seminal book of short stories, Ficciones. I have been uh, not reading it <laughs> yet. Uh, I'm sure at some point I must have read uh, one or more of these stories in the past, but this is a bit of a, a gray area for me. So I can't wait to hear you uh, and Aldis cover him. So then after we're done, I can get through and read Ficciones or the uh, the book club. I know he wrote a, um, a short story called The Olive Complex, uh, uh just believe, the Aleph. Or just yeah. the Aleph. Okay, oh, you know yeah. why I said it? the Aleph Complex is a playwright friend of mine, Deborah Yarchin, wrote a play called The Aleph Complex, which, oh, okay. which is And I think that leads into the maybe the final thing I'll say uh, about him. I know he's extremely influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you probably can't overstate the degree of, of his influence in mm-hmm. Spanish letters, but then also more yeah. more broadly. Yeah. That's yeah. what I know. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think we're going to be surprised. Um, I did not realize uh, I understood his significance at, before I got into this research uh, for literary 
for for people like me, <laughs> I did not realize how big of a deal he was like on the world scene as a figure. Um, and we're going to get into it, but it was it's pretty pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, let me let me ho- we'll we'll kind of get into it here. Um, Are you going to tease the after dark? Oh yeah. So here's here's the after dark. The after dark is the we're going to try to answer the question: Why did he not win a Nobel Prize? If he was the biggest deal in the 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 sophisticated literary world welcomed by in by everyone why didn't he win right he lived for 40 years past his his the publication of the the, the great the great work that everybody would have given it to him for so we're going to find out why he did not win i'm going to um, guess and that's for patreon patreon.com slash art of dark pod so after the core episode we will take a quick break and then do another 20 or 30 minutes for patreon mm-hmm. where we will answer that question before i know anything else i'm just going to say he probably had a bad swedish translator <laughs> could be <laughs> that could be it could be yeah well yeah, it's especially like surprising that. since the nobel prize is always completely fair and rooted in yes. artistic concerns and nothing right. else there's no politics involved nobody would ever get like political about it in any way right <laughs> or yeah think about identity or anything like that okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> very see, good tease for the tease that'll be fun yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me start. I, I I was searching and searching for like a little bit I wanted to read and also uh just kind of start things off. Um and I know of Borges primarily as a writer of short stories, but I think you could look at his career, you could forget about all the all the short stories, and he still has an he still has an impressive oof. Uh you could forget about the poetry and the fiction, and he still has an impressive body of work, right? So so it's hard to even know you could do an we could do an episode on the nonfiction, the essays. We could do an a- episode on the poetry. We could do an episode on the short stories. I got into reading some of the poetry. I know we're going to do more of it later, but I just wanted to start with this one just to get his voice in our head a little bit. This is a poem called To the One Who Is Reading Me. You are invulnerable. Didn't they deliver those forces that control your destiny? The certainty of dust? Couldn't it be your irreversible time is that river in whose bright mirror Heraclitus read his brevity? A marble slab is saved for you, one you won't read, already graved with city, epitaph, dates of the dead. And other men are also dreams of time, not hardened bronze, purified gold. They're dust like you. The universe is Proteus. Shadow, you'll travel to what waits ahead, the fatal shadow, shadow waiting at the rim. Know this. In some way, you're already dead. Uh, so that felt like a good bit of art of dark, art of darkness kind of uh, place to be um, to kind of get started, right? <laughs> I don't know, Brad. I like a good mystery myself. I like, I like John Grisham. Right? Have you right. heard of that? Okay. Wow. Bor has like liked a good mystery too. As oh, did we'll, he? As we'll oh, learn. Good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, I think you're gonna dig this where he positions himself. In Brad, no genre. foreplay. Yeah, I'm so well, and if you've read Borges before, and maybe you've only read the stories, and then you turn to the poems, you're you're gonna recognize some of the images and ideas in the poem kind of coming up again. Because I'm sure we'll get into this, but he had 
you know, these uh, certain fixations throughout his career. So you've got time in there and Heraclitus and, um, you know, these kind of uncanny paradoxes of identity and time. And uh, it doesn't get old because it sort of shifts around kaleidoscopically. These, you know, you're going to encounter the same things, but there's, there's something weird about these like odd repetitions in Borges. So, yeah. Yeah, and he's he's masterful about about reifying them in down into like the perfect phrase to encapsulate them sometimes too, right? So it's like sometimes it feels like he's spent 20 years developing a metaphor and it find like finally sinks in. Very interesting stuff. And we're going to get to how he kind of develops the style and his artistic development because I think it's very interesting. But quick intro for people who have no idea who Borges is. Um uh Jorge Francisco Isidoro Luis Borges Acevedo uh, was born on August in uh, August 24th of 1899, dies in June 14th of 1986. So he makes it to what is that? 80 some years old. Anyway, 87, 87 years old. Like that. Yeah. Um, that knows that time period. Yeah. I always say this, but that time period always blows my mind. When you mm. see an 18 in front of somebody and they live to be living in the 80s time, and the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just Wild. surreal to think about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I just yes. learned that actually uh, Vladimir Nabokov was born in 1899 as well. So we might consider that kind of like a watershed year for producing these, you know, people yeah. who would transform literature into the mm -hmm. postmodern and, and so on. Didn't we learn that Disney was born in 1899? Uh, I can look it up again, but that anyway, sounds right. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, okay. it's right. And, and well, hang on, uh, Brad, and I don't mean to derail, you know, he, no, Disney okay. was born in 1901. Oh, but yeah, okay. it's just that funny thing where they're they're born late enough that they don't see the Great War. They're not uh, caught they're up in, in that it. as a participant. Obviously, it affected everyone. Uh, but and then. World War II, maybe they're a little older than the, like the prime age. So it's a very interesting time to be to have been born. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is just from Wikipedia. Uh, let's see. Borges works have contributed to the to philosophical literature and the fantasy genre and majorly influenced the magic realist movement in the 20th century by Latin by Latin American uh, 20th in 20th century Latin American literature, which I think a lot of people know. But that's just sort of the one paragraph introduction. I'm going to try to convince you that he is significant by reading a passage from David Foster Wallace when David Foster Wallace was reviewing. I'm going to do I got a couple Borges labyrinthian reference kind of things going, which feels very appropriate. So main source for biographical material is is uh, Borges, A Life by Edwin Williamson. Um, pretty well done biography. He does seem to take some leaps um, and kind of say, well, this is a speculation on the motivations for something that I don't know he always has the grounding for. So we're going to kind of try to asterisk that stuff when it does come up. But let me give you this bit from David Foster Wallace, who is writing a review of this biography. <clears throat> the truth briefly stated is that Borges is arguably the great bridge between modernism and postmodernism in world literature. He is modernist in that his fiction shows a first-rate human mind stripped of all foundations in religious or ideological certainty, a mind turned thus wholly in on itself. His stories are inbent and hermetic with the oblique terror of a game whose rules are unknown and at stakes everything. <clears throat> And the mind of those stories is nearly always a mind that lives in and through books, 
This is because Borges, the writer, is fundamentally a reader. The dense, obscure elusiveness of, of his fiction is not a tick or even really a style, and it is no accident that his best stories are often fake essays or reviews of fictitious books or have texts at their plot centers or have as protagonists Homer or Dante. Whether for seminal artistic reasons or neurotic personal ones or both, Borges collapses reader and writer into a new kind of aesthetic agent, one who makes stories out of stories, one for whom reading is essentially, consciously, a creative act. This is not, however, because Borges is a metafictionist or a cleverly disguised critic, it is because he knows that there is finally no difference, that murderer and victim, detective and fugitive, performer and audience are the same. Obviously, this has postmodern implica implications, but Borges is really a mystical. Borges is, is really a mystical insight and a profound one. It's also frightening, since the line between monism and solipsism is thin and porous, more to do with spirit than with the mind per se. And as an artistic program, this kind of collapse of individual identity is also paradoxical, requiring a grotesque self-obsession combined with an almost total effacement of self and personality. Ticks and obsessions aside, what makes Borges a, a Borges story Borgesian is the odd, ineluctable sense you get that no one and everyone did it. <clears throat> that's a little bit. I think that's a good. That when I read that, I felt like this is a pretty good overview of what's going on with Borges, the writer, Borges, the sort of phenomena, all of that. Um, and that was DF, uh, DFW. That was, yeah. Okay, yeah. right. Who is cool. who is profoundly influenced by by Borges. Um, I think before we get into it, I think what we should do, uh, and I'm acting like I just came up with this now, uh, which is a good Borgesian move, uh, <laughs> um, is talk a little bit about one of these stories. Um, and I think the one we want to talk about is, how do you, how, Aldous, how do you say it? Okay, so this is a good. Uh, I was thinking maybe we actually we want to confer with Kevin okay. as someone who's probably employed the umlaut a little bit more. <laughs> uh, I know you studied yeah. German a little bit. I'm guessing because it's it's T L O with an umlaut n, and I'm guessing it's something like Tlun or something Tlun. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm just gonna. It's a little awkward for me. So at a certain point. I think you just have to embrace your barbarian American ton, tongue, mm -hmm. and, and I'm just going to say Tuan. Tuan, yeah. Tuan Akbar Orbis Tertius is, yeah. is the name of the story. Um, and already at the title, you kind of know where you're at with this story, which is, you know, he's going to give you a lot of these really strange words to deal with, and it's a little dis disorienting or destabilizing. We're drawing upon three different kind of uh linguistic register or you know linguistic traditions germanic middle eastern and latin right um and that kind of that kind of gives you a little flavor of borges already but i actually wanted to real quick comment on the dfw quote because i think it's really mm -hmm. well observed because when I, I was listening to the great david foster wallace episode you guys mm -hmm. did by the way um yeah. and i was thinking about this idea of the postmodern and why because you know, Borges is probably is the first full-blown postmodern writer. It's always dangerous to say, oh, here's the first, because you can always go back a little further and find some precedent. But um, what makes his version of that <clears throat> so unique and uh, not kind of... Because, you know, postmodernism can feel very precious or can feel very cynical or kind of mm -hmm. painfully self-aware. And it's not like Borges never 
goes into that territory, but I think there's something uh, kind of special and magical about what the way that he does it. And it has to do with his, um, well, I think he used the word mystical there. And there's, there's something about the, the way he embraces skepticism and mysticism at the same time, this uh, approach to total knowledge and yet complete like unknowing i'm getting a little like highfalutin before we even even get yeah, into the right. stories here but sorry you, about that you have but... to to talk borges i feel like it, yeah it, it's difficult to it's kind of hard to dumb it down and in some ways right and and yeah. he has the philosophical depth to do that to actually like sell that mm-hmm. um so anyways yeah uh tuan akbar orbis tertius um every time i reread it it kind of blows my mind what he's able to um, get in there the layered complexity of it um, in a story that's probably not more than 10 pages so I I'm going to consult my notes in order to uh, sure. do the plot synopsis but actually probably what we should do is I'd really like to read it's kind of it's a bit of a long opening paragraph and I want to read the opening paragraph because it's going to give us the flavor of of Borges here so here's how it starts I owe the discovery of Akbar to the conjunction of a mirror and an encyclopedia. The mirror troubled the far end of a hallway in a large country house on Calle Gaona in Ramos Mejia. The encyclopedia is misleadingly titled the Anglo-American Cyclopedia, New York, 1917, and is a literal, though also laggardly, reprint of the 1902 Encyclopedia Britannica. The event took place about five years ago. Boy Casares had come to dinner at my house that evening, and we had lost all track of time in a vast debate over the way one might go about composing a first-person novel whose narrator would omit or distort things and engage in all sorts of contradictions so that a few of the book's readers, a very few, might divine the horrifying or banal truth. Down at the end of the hallway, the mirror hovered, shadowing us. We discovered... Very late at night, such a discovery is inevitable, that there is something monstrous about mirrors. That was when Bioy remembered a saying by one of the heresiarchs of Ukbar. Mirrors and copulation are abominable, for they multiply the number of mankind. I asked him where he'd come across that memorable epigram, and he told me it was recorded in the Anglo-American Cyclopedia in its article on Ukbar. Okay, that's paragraph one. Um, <laughs> yes. So you can see um, we're already we're in the world of scholarship and books and the minute details of of that uh, editions, translations, copies, and the therefore the possibility of copy errors or even fakes, which is a major theme of this story. Um, from this idea, we're led to the an actual mirror, um, because there's a lot of metaphorical mirrors in Borges and in this story. Um, so the mirror and the labyrinth, labyrinth are probably uh, Borges's two uh, primary symbols that he uses. Uh, he has others, um, but they obsessed him his entire life. And uh, actually, I'll just take a second, and mm-hmm. if I could, and uh, you know, hawk my wares on your show. <laughs> um, the Forest of Symbols is a podcast that uh, deals with this kind of material. So, if you like, you know, what I'm doing here, I do a lot more of it on that podcast, and I will be doing. Yeah. If if this is the first time, I I skipped over this because I'm so used to having you on. 
yeah, if you haven't listened to Art of Dark much before and you haven't caught, caught all this, Force of Symbols is is like the best podcast out there. And I say that and Kevin winced at me because he's like, but hold on. <laughs> <laughs> so you should be you should be listening wait to a second yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Oh, it's it's great yeah co-side co-side go on brett no yeah we'll it. be we'll be we'll be doing um we'll be doing borges related stuff this year labyrinths and mirrors uh in particular but of course those you know it goes beyond borges but um yeah that's kind of a good place to start um but anyway so yeah so we have the mirror um we have uh the mention of this guy casares um he was one of borges's uh real life friends and and literary kind of co-conspirators um if you're looking for more you know like argentine magical realist for lack of a better word um literature he has a little short novel called the invention of morel um but that's important to this story because borges populates it with real people from his own you know milieu um real people from history and then also fake people from history so he's mixing fiction and reality already and that mirrors and copulation quote it's it's kind of sounds this gnostic theme which is also a very relevant um to his work and as well as the idea that they kind of toss out there which i can i think it's missed a little bit in in readings of this story this discussion they're having about how would you create this esoteric novel that very few people would understand the either horrifying or banal i love how those are completely contradictory um meaning of which makes us wonder about a possible esoteric dimension to this story um, but I'll leave that for my podcast. Um, yeah, <laughs> this is one thing I love that Borges does in some of the stories and, and not in everyone. A lot of times he does kind of throw something kind of in the air that's very perplexing. And then he sort of just moves past it. Yep. And it kind of ends up falling in your mind and not really on the page, sort of. This sort of like it, it gets kind of set up. And then you're off doing something else, which I think kind of happens here too, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. He does a lot of like parentheticals, like he's tossing something out there, even in an adjective that's like surprising and makes you go, wait, what about that? And then Bean just moves on. Mm -hmm. There's there's an interview that he gave with, uh, I think it was the Paris Review, and the, they got on the subject of his interest in uh, Kabbalah, which we'll we'll come back to later. Mm -hmm. um, and the interviewer asked him a very pertinent question which is do you ever write your stories kabbalistically and he says sometimes i do and then the interviewer just asks a completely different question after that it just doesn't follow up <laughs> just <laughs> like okay ones noted in, yeah right which kabbalistic techniques do you employ right um right right yeah interesting uh, are you now or have you ever been a kabbalist right. um <laughs> uh but anyway uh you know so yeah casares and borges they're sitting in this uh old country house and the, the house is well stocked with the library of course and so they go to the relevant uh volume of the relevant encyclopedia and they cannot find the entry on this country akbar which nobody's ever heard of um so the next day casares brings his own copy where he got the article and they inspect the two versions of the encyclopedia that particular article uh, appears to be the only difference between the two uh, now one of the curious things about this akbar is that all of its literature is set in one of two imaginary 
lands, of imaginary planets, uh, and never in the real world. And of course, Tlon is the only one of the two that gets discussed at all. So there's another little weird detail that's kind of like left hanging. Um, then later, and I'm, I'm going to be skipping over some things, but he, he comes into possession of a package that was supposed to go to um, an eccentric English friend of his father's, um, who Borges gives uh, a number of hot weird hobbies like base 12 numbers and so on that actually are belong to Borges's real life friend Zul Solar who was a painter uh, also painted on some esoteric subjects and uh, yeah had a lot of invented new ways of playing chess and stuff like that um, Zul Solar also shows up in this story mm -hmm. um, but the package turns out to include an encyclopedia of Tlon and it's stamped with this mysterious inscription, Orbis Tertius. So now we have the full title. Uh, Orbis Tertius is Latin for either the third world or world three. Hmm. Um, now the rest of the story or most of it is devoted to the description of in the, in the encyclopedia of this planet. Now, many sci-fi or fantasy stories when describing a fictional planet would probably spend a lot of time on the unusual flora and fauna but this is Borges, so we get a somewhat dismissive reference to transparent tigers and towers of blood, and then a whirlwind tour of metaphysics and linguistics. <laughs> That's um, uh, very metal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Towers of blood. Pretty intense. And we just we just move right by it. Yeah. Just yeah. Yeah. I mean, Borges was obsessed with tigers, so that's another image that we get over and over in his work, but... Anyway, um, what uh, one way of understanding the way things work on Talon is to think of it as an application of the ideas of George Berkeley, the British uh, idealist philosopher who also happens to belong to the British empirical tradition, a weird kind of heretical version of empiricism where, you know, only sensations are real, but sensations are only in the mind. So for Berkeley, um, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Yes, because God is everywhere and he hears it. Um, <laughs> otherwise, it wouldn't. And in fact, that's kind of how it works on Tlon. It's kind of like Barclayan idealism, although God isn't there to sort of underwrite the reality of things. So, you know, whatever your religious beliefs, I I don't think I think it's hard to avoid a certain kind of uh, kind of kitchen sink scientific materialism as a common sense, which is completely lacking on Tlon. The way their language works is that there are no nouns because objects have no reality to them. There's different languages, one which is based on verbs. So instead of the noun moon, you will have a verb uh, called to moonate. Moon is something done. It's an action, not not a thing. Um, there's another language which just piles up a bunch of adjectives, and those that sort of temporary assemblage of adjectives make uh, an quote-unquote object. Um, so this is directly quoting from the story. One does not say moon. One says aerial bright above dark round, or soft amberish celestial, or any other string. There are famous poems composed of a single enormous word. This word is a poetic object created by the poet. 
The fact that nobody believes in the reality expressed by these nouns means paradoxically that there is no limit to their number. So that <laughs> that's language. Um, science, there's only one science, psychology. Um, there are all kinds of philosophical systems, but they're only This is a short story? This is a short story. This is my like 10 pages. This is a synopsis of a short story. Yeah. <laughs> I I see. Very good. I haven't thought about the name George Barkley mm. in a long time. So Kevin flashes back to his philosophy yeah. undergraduate dot GIF. Borges was fascinated with Barkley and idealism. Mm. Uh, the two the two thinkers that influenced him most were were from from what I can tell are Barkley and, and Schopenhauer. And, oh, yeah. okay, Schopenhauer. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sorry. What, what guess, were you going to I say? I was going to guess uh, Spinoza. But, Actually, okay. Spinoza is in there too. He's yeah, yeah okay, he's good. very into Spinoza. Very good. Um, yeah. So what he says about philosophy, which I, I this is really interesting. So I kind of want to wonder what you guys <laughs> think about this. What he, what he says is that there are systems upon systems that are incredible, but possessed of a pleasing architecture or a certain agreeable sensationalism. The metaphysician. The metaphysicians of Tlon seek not truth or even plausibility. They seek to amaze, astound. In their view, metaphysics is a branch of the literature of fantasy. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> yeah, because I, yeah, no, I, that's, that's where I am hooked on this. I'm sort of like, Borges is able to assemble this. He he he, he kind of takes off on this. Okay, basically, we're gonna make what if idealism? What if everybody believed idealism in like their common sense everyday practice? What would things be like? And then he just keeps going with it. And then you do get to the point where like, well, yeah, any speculation about the reality of something is basically fiction, right? Because yes. ultimately, you don't believe in any of it. You don't actually believe in it. You think it's all just a, sort of a collective illusion or an individual illusion. Right. Yeah. And logically, if there's no objective world for a philosophy to correspond to, there's no difference between fantasy literature and metaphysics. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing, right? Although right. they do have a materialist scientific philosophy as one of the sort of heretical positions that a philosopher takes as at one point. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, these are kind of like strange ideas to think about, but it gets even better or weirder because reality actually works this way. The way they think actually affects the way the the, the way the world works because he, he describes a scenario that um, someone loses a pencil. Two people look for the pencil. One person finds it, but he doesn't tell the other person. So the second person also finds the pencil. Um, but the second <laughs> pencil is the same, but it's it's just bigger. And they have all these secondary objects that are called Fronier. And um, these are things that are produced by the expectation of finding them. And you can't produce them by intention exactly, but if you expect to produce them, you will find them. Um, conversely, objects can fade or even disappear if they are forgotten. Borges writes, the classic example is the doorway that continued to exist so long as a certain beggar frequented it, but which was lost to sight when he died. Sometimes a few birds, a horse, have saved the ruins of an amphitheater. I love that line. I, I, I think that line is great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is where the story 
kind of proper kind of ends, but there's a postscript to the story, which of course is part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the postscript is where the twist really is, which is that, um, and it's set seven years in the future from when Borges um, published it. So that makes this technically science fiction, I suppose. Um, what happens is that the complete di- Encyclopedia of Tuan is discovered, and it is discovered that it, it sort of explained that this whole thing was a hoax produced by a secret society that was hundreds of years in the making um, that required diverse array of expertises to create this uh, planet. Um, and disturbingly, beyond this point, um, and there's a big craze for Tuan. People are like kind of obsessed with Tuan now, and once that happens. Um, apparent objects from Tuan began appearing in the real world, uh, such as a compass with Tuanian symbols inscribed yeah. on it and a small uh, pyramidal cylinder of incredible weight. Mm-hmm. And um, what Borges suggests um, is the possibility that knowing about Tuan makes the world more like Tuan, or even further, that it is destroying the very idea of reality. So I'm going to read from the final paragraphs. Almost, almost immediately, reality caved in at more than one point. The truth is, it wanted to cave in. Ten years ago, any symmetry, any system with an appearance of order, dialectical materialism, anti-Semitism, Nazism, could spellbind and hypnotize mankind. Uh, this is the early 40s, by the way, when he's publishing it. How could the world not fall under the sway of Talon? How could it not yield to the vast and minutely detailed evidence of an ordered planet? It would be futile to reply that reality is also orderly. Perhaps it is, but orderly in accordance with divine laws, read in human laws, that we can never quite manage to penetrate. Tlon may well be a labyrinth, but it is a labyrinth forged by men, a labyrinth destined to be deciphered by men. Contact with Tlon, the habit of Tlon has disintegrated this world. If my projections are correct, a hundred years from now, someone will discover the hundred volumes of the second encyclopedia of Tlon. At that, French and English and mere Spanish will disappear from the earth. The world will be Tlon. <laughs> uh, okay, so the story briefly yeah. right <laughs> wow yeah so this is the kind of territory we're working with now what i don't know if that got across and i'm fam- i've read this story four or five times most recently like just the other day and what i don't think what i think it is maybe difficult to understand in that description all this which was great you covered everything we could have wanted to was how engaging it actually is like that doesn't sound that to me there's a way you can give a summary of that and it's like well okay that sounds like an interesting like philosophical like a thought experiment or something but it's actually very engaging you feel like you are you are sinking further and further into some kind of mystery as this is going along and partially this is because borges is he's deceptively his his techniques are deceptively effective like and we'll talk more about it but but there's this there's this clarity that he manages to achieve while still having sort of novel and interesting images that i find to be absolutely intoxicating so i could have read Tlan being 100 page 300 pages i could have just kept reading it didn't Delano say that this is the one book that he would have on an island or something to that effect <laughs> this is i told my wife this the other day okay. I, if i have one book i get to keep take with me this would be it would be the collected fictions of borges the big the big the big one not the one we're doing for the book club but all all of it 
right? Yeah, you got to get the three blue volumes. That's the collected fiction, selected poems, and collected nonfiction. Mm-hmm. That's that's my opinion. But yeah, so incredible. Yeah, it's so good. Okay, so now we haven't really talked much about his life, but I wanted to get that some of that out there. Now, I'm sorry if that was too involved. I know it's a long time, but not you know, at all. That was uh, great. We could talk all day just about that that one mm-hmm. story. No, that was great. I wanted to get that out there because I wanted people who aren't quite familiar with Borges to to know kind of what we're dealing with on the literary level, right? This is a guy who can play that game um, of just intense philosophical reference and in, in, in uh, metaphysical sort of language games and still make it captivating as on almost like a noir fiction level, right? Just good. So such good stuff. Now to tell us to tell, uh, to talk more about who Borges was as a person, we got to go back. So imagine sepia, sepia toned right uh <laughs> things are getting a little dim the car's not around anymore we're talking about the history of argentina and i'm not going to give you the whole history of argentina i'm going to try to give you the blow by blow because i want the audience to be able to see exactly where borges sits in the history of argentina um <clears throat> so um sorry or you're welcome for this argentinian uh, history. Actually, you should say Argentine, apparently. Argentinian, according to Borges, is a made-up word. They made up Argentinian so we would sound like the rest of South America. So we'd sound like Bolivians and Brazilians, but we're Argentines. Um, so, interesting. So, okay. If you don't know, Argentina is a major country by any measure. Second largest country in South America, eighth largest in the world, population of 46 million plus, right? Um, so, the Spanish Empire controlled South America uh, into the 17th century. Um, the general area known today as Argentina was split off the viceroyalty of the Rio de la Plata from the viceroyalty of Peru in 1776, with Peru remaining as the capital. It would later repel two different British invasions in 1806 and 1807. But when Ferdinand VII was overthrown in the Peninsular War, Napoleon installed his brother on the Spanish throne and things began to change because during the sort of instability of this, um, this opened the door for um, the May Revolution of 1810, which would lead to Argentine independence. Um, in this May Revolution, the Viceroy was replaced by the first junta, and there would be many juntas throughout Argentine history, um, a government essentially composed of the locals, which were a lot of people who were descended from Spain, from Spain um, mixed uh, with native populations to varying degrees. Um the first junta wasn't entirely successful in suppressing royalist counter-revolutions, however, but had to sort of gain the coalition of a bunch of different groups, including disaffected Filipinos who'd moved there for silver mining. And this led to the Congress of Tucumán, the formal declaration of independence. So I, I know a lot of people will say, well, America's like the first time that like a colony rebelled and like gained its independence. Like or, or something like that, where people moved from England to America and then rebelled against it. Argentina did the same kind of thing. It just took longer and um, and didn't immediately lead to like prosperity that lasts up to this day in a continuous government, right? So you're very easy to kind of forget the story. Um, they, in order to actually become independent there were all kinds of civil skirmishes and conflicts they had full-on war with the british they had they got invaded by the brazilian empire it was not easily accomplished um 
the big split after the May Revolution, which would last for generations, was between the Federalists and the Centralists, with the Federalists being led for a long period of time by this fairly monstrous uh, Caudillo. Uh, and the best in English translation for that word, Caudillo, is a strong man, basically. Um, they're run for a long time by this Caudillo named Juan Manuel de Rosas. Um, he was somewhat effective. He staved off blockades. He he won a war of confederation and much else. Uh, but he folk his his sort of uh, is best remembered for grinding the centralists under his heel as much as possible. Right. So this led to eventually a kind of tumultuous overturning of Caudillo's just running the country, right? And when you have strong men running the country, there's obvious advantages and disadvantages to that, right? Um, eventually, this starts to stabilize in the 1861 Battle of Pavone. Uh, sorry, yeah, Battle of Pavone between the army of the state and the army of the republic. So another kind of civil conflict skirmish. Okay, I'm getting there. By 1880, this guy, uh, Julio Argentino Roca, comes to the presidency and ushers in liberal economic policies that brought a massive wave of European immigration, second only to the U.S. So in the 1880s, there were almost as many people immigrating to um, Argentina as there were to the United States um, and stimulated the Arge uh, Argentine economy to the point where it was the self seventh wealthiest nation in the world in 1908. I don't think most people are aware of that. Um, that means more than most of Europe, uh, right? Um, okay, how does the Borges family fit into this? Borges' grandfather, Francisco Borges, was a celebrated soldier who, at the end of a bunch of different conflicts, including fighting uh, gaucho, gauchos, which are like, if you can think of them as... as indigenous or partially indigenous uh argentine cowboys right um Look, just to sorry to yeah, step in right. for a second no, this idea ahead. of the gaucho is like it's hard to overstate the importance of the gaucho as like a mythical like real but also mythical figure and i the cowboy is almost a perfect analogy i mean they essentially are cowboys and mm -hmm. if you think about the importance of the cowboy to um, uh, american self-identity it's extremely important we you know we also mm -hmm. we have similar histories and mm -hmm. it's possible that this some version of the cowboy is like there in like every western hemisphere hey. tree but mm -hmm. um the cowboy figures large in Borges' stories as well, which might not be something you would guess based on the Tlon story that I right, right. read, but he was also lifelong obsessed with these um, kind of like lower class figures, like roughs and people of the street. And there's a lot of duels. And the, the one major difference between uh, the American, you know, United States, North American cowboy and the Argentine, and I think like Paraguay and Uruguay are, are really obsessed with the the gaucho as well, is that they always fight with knives. It's not gunfighting, it's knife fighting. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> knife Yikes. fighters come up a few times in this. Yeah. Yeah. Knife yeah. fighting is uh frightening. Yeah. Do right. not like it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Every time Absolutely. a knife fight appears on my feed, I quickly scroll past and certainly don't yeah. watch it 10 times in a row. Yeah. Well, you're no gaucho. I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's an insult or a compliment or not. Uh, um, so uh, Francisco Borges. Uh, thanks for that, Aldous. That's that's good. That's very good context because it, it is it's you have to think of the gaucho existing in Borges's subconscious at all times basically it's it's always there um his grandfather uh 
finally he fighting the federalists fighting rosas uh he dies in a moment that would be much embellished later on and sort of raised up to a legendary status um basically he gave his life that's the conception anyway in support of um this guy bartholomew uh bartholomew I'm having a hard time saying that for some reason, who would um, become the president who ushered in the modern state of Argentina. And there's a lot of turnover in in leadership, but eventually that's who um, that that's where we turn from these this string of strong men into the 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 economic revitalization in the late 19th century. And Borges' grandfather figures into that in a military capacity, very in a very important role. His great grandfather was the Argentine uh, Colonel Manuel Isidore Suarez, who was a hero in the Battle of uh, Junin. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Um, this was a critical engagement in the Peruvian War of Independence, which was critical overall for the independence of South America. He was such a hero that there's actually a city named Suarez after this man in uh, the Buenos Aires province, right? So Borges comes from this family of like, they're, they're almost... I don't know if they're quite founding father level, but they're like, you know, if you had a grandfather who won and was a general in an important battle in the Revolutionary War, you know, it's it's kind of on that level. Um, and so things like land come down to the family that, you know, you end up getting taken care of to a certain extent by the by the forming government. He also had an English uh, grandmother, Fanny Haslam who had spent a bunch of time on the frontier and who sounds like a fascinating lady. She's, you know, born in England, has an English accent. And she's like living on the frontier with Gua uh, Gauchos. Gauchos talks about, you know, her husband getting into conflicts with what she would call Indians, right? The, the indigenous population it was very interesting. Um, so Borges is born into this, you know, well-named, well-heeled family, August 24th, 1899, as we said, in the very middle of this Argentine economic renaissance. Um, shortly after he's born, the family buys two adjacent plots in the barrio of Palermo. Today, this is a kind of a desirable neighborhood. But at this at that time, it was at the far northwest edge of Buenos Aires, and it was primarily known for knife fighting. So again, knife fighting comes up again. Um, uh, well, what, do, what do they say? You run toward a gun... Yeah. And you run away from, away a, knife. from a knife. Yeah. That is yeah. a public service announcement from the <laughs> Art of Darkness podcast. I In case you didn't listeners... know, run yeah. away from a knife. <laughs> right. <laughs> run away. F I, I may also run away from a gun. I probably I'm run away saying from lean of them. into an iPhone. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. We always try to lean in on the pod. Yeah. That is scary. That is like if you have a culture of knife fighting. Yeah. That is and there are like there are of... like famous knife fighters. There are like people who are known by their reputation as knife fighters, right? Yeah. Um, he the, the where they lived also was near a, an area of town called Tierra del Fuego, uh, which was basically the spillover of the huge state penitentiary. Um, that was like right down the street from where Bor uh, Borges grew up. So basically what they did, his father had this large house built over two lots and it was basically the biggest house in the neighborhood. Um, they had a windmill pump for what was apparently the freshest water in the neighborhood. They had trees and all of this stuff. And then they basically just locked Jorge and his sister in. It was basically for years, it was you kind of didn't leave the leave the residence, um, which is, imp is important. Um, 
the family is kind of an odd uh, they're kind of oddly paired up the, the the his father and his mother his father also jorge was an anarchist and a bohemian but he kind of comes from this reputable family with money um who at one point was going to kind of ran off to Paraguay with a friend. They were going to start up an anarchist commune. Um, but he eventually sort of changes his mind and decides to become a lawyer partially to please his mother. <laughs> that's a, that's quite a turn. Yeah. Uh, from, uh, I'm going to dismantle the system from the inside, man. Right. Right. I'm going to, yeah. It wasn't even like that. It was sort of just like, I guess this is a job you can have. Yeah, right. yeah. Mother um, won't be embarrassed. Uh, yeah, but he did go to, this. Mm. Yeah, this commune in Paraguay. The idea was it was going to be free love, man. Nobody's going to own anything, man. Right? It was that. It was that kind of thing. Um, but in you know the eighteen eighties, um, which is just kind of which is just interesting. Um, he marries this woman, uh, Leonor, who is uh very Catholic, uh bourgeois, and obsessed with her criollo, uh, criollo. I can never. Say, I can't say this word, criollo. The right? one true faith. Ah, yeah, you had to say it <laughs> yeah, for the bingo card. Yeah, uh, would somebody tell me if this is right? C R I O L L O Criollo. I think that's right. What that's on earth? Weird. What is it? um? It's basically if you live in Argentina or other parts of South America and you have like primarily Spanish descent, you're primarily Spanish, right? This is Creole. It's a, it's a class, basically. Ah, I see. Okay, right. got it. Um. <clears throat> Um, and so Borges' mother was obsessed with this. She believed she came, they came from a great family of both sides, her side and, and her husband's side, and that this had been tamped down by the, the tyrant Rosas and that they had basically been cheated out of their pedigree, right? They should be basically Argentine nobility, but as far as she was concerned, um, instead they're, instead they're just doing very, very well for themselves. <laughs> so, um, uh, Borges' father would take a job as a law clerk, which was so boring that uh, when he wrote a novel at age 36, this is Borges' father, he wrote a novel called uh, El Cadillo, um, which almost nobody read. He would relate the law to everything that was, quote, conventional and dead, right? So he hated being a law clerk. He didn't have to do it for long, fortunately for him. Um, as Georgie, uh, that's what they call Jorge, Georgie, uh, Georgie and his sister grew, their father was a distinctly removed figure content to leave the affairs of the family and the day-to-day -day running of the house to his wife while he pursued his interests elsewhere with his bohemian friends. So you can see that that would go really well. Um, uh, now, here's the, the upshot to having a bohemian anarchist kind of eccentric father is you get to have a big library. Um, Georgie grew basically grew up with a huge library that he could read anything he wanted, and an extraordinary privilege for anyone at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, sure, yeah, yeah. He didn't again. Yeah. He didn't have to leave the house. There's you know incredible, uh, right? Um, mm -hmm. um, from the age of about four, he would spend most of his time reading. Huck Finn was. He would later say that Huck Finn was the first novel he could remember reading. Um, he read primarily in English. I mean, he had a he had an English grandmother. Um, he had an English tutor. Um, yeah, English, English and Spanish. When he was a young boy, he didn't quite understand that they were two different languages. He just knew that you had to talk slightly differently to the English grandmother than you did to everybody else. Um, his only playmate throughout childhood was his sister, uh, Nora, uh, who would go on to become a talented woodcut artist in her own right. I actually do really, I looked up some of her work. I do really like it. Um, 
she would go on to marry the Dadaist and ultraist poet uh, Guillermo del Torre, who we're going to talk about ultraism a little bit. Um, and let's see, what else do we have there? Um, yeah, so I think let's. This is a good time because I want us to picture. So we got Georgie Jorge coming from this sort of not quite well-to-do family, but but definitely definitely there's money. They're isolated. They're kind of remembering this storied past, right? But then again, that's something you have to live up to. You've got these, you know, amazing soldiers in your in your past. And all he really has is the library, which I think has to have inspired maybe his most famous story that Al, we're gonna Aldous is gonna talk about, the library of Babel. All right. Um, yeah, so I, I want to introduce uh the idea of the library of Babel by uh, listing off some of the books that we know are in it, even though Borges never talks about them, okay? But we know for sure they're there, all right? Yeah. So, for instance, the book Nutcranker by Dan Baltic is <laughs> in the there. Library of Babel. Whoa, he got that nut. <laughs> that's that's so good. Yes, the show's lawyer, very mm -hmm. famously. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, yes. So Nutcranker is there. Yeah, Dan mm -hmm. Baltic's Nutcranker but attributed to Kevin Kautzman is also no. in there. <laughs> Wait, no, what? Okay. <laughs> Cranker by Kevin Kautzman is also yeah. in the library. Brad wow. Kelly's House of Sleep is in the Library of Babel. Mm -hmm. Also a book called The House of Sleep attributed to Brad Kelly. But inside, the text is all gibberish. The House of Sleep, but everything and inside. nobody notices. <laughs> 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 the house of sleep but everything inside is gibberish except for the word house in exactly the same places where it now occurs in the book the house mm. of sleep except only one letter in one single word is different this book is called the horse of sleep <laughs> the house of sleep only the diving man is called all the cesterian the House of Sleep, but all the characters are people who have been on the Art of Darkness podcast. Okay, so obviously I'm <laughs> I'm doing a bit here yes, related I to the, the podcast and and you know the extended Art of Darkness universe. All of that yeah. exists within the Library of Babel. Um, but the thing you have to understand is that uh, one, although all of the, the real versions of these books were um, products of arduous labor over you know men you know working in the imagination minds you know all day and all night in the library of babel they necessarily exist and have for eternity <laughs> they're also separated from each other by just oceans of nonsense <laughs> <laughs> the reason is that it's essentially the working out of a mathematical idea you have um 25 symbols orthographic symbols is what he calls it which is 22 alphabetical letters a comma a period and a space space counts as a, an, an orthographic symbol in the system and the story is the the narrator is obviously a one of the librarians which is just a person who exists in the universe and this universe is equivalent to a library and nothing else um they live inside hexagons which have five bookshelves five bookshelves each bookshelf has 32 uh, books which are identical in format they're 410 pages each page has 40 lines each each line has approximately 80 black uh, black letters um there are titles on the books but they have nothing to do with what's inside the books and so 
the library exists, uh, the, the library consists of every possible book that can exist with that those parameters. So that's mm. the library of Babel. Yeah, it makes me unsettle. It unsettles me just to think of it. Yeah. So there, there are descriptions <laughs> of, you know, various kinds of cults that have emerged around searching for meaningful books, which is a very difficult thing once you understand the vastness of the Library of Babel, um, which I'll get to in a moment, because we, we can actually like roughly calculate uh, how big it is. Um, and there's there's some, again, like with Tlan Akbar, it's really hard to kind of communicate how the story is told, um, the kind of... Un unsettling uncanny nature of it uh, one weird detail is that um within the middle of the of these hexagons are like these open air these air shafts and this is like their only ventilation um when you die your body is tossed down one of these air shafts and disintegrates in the air as you fall um so um Anyway, uh, there's there's a really good book um, written about the, the mathematical implications of the Library of Babel called uh, Borges, The Unimaginable Mathematics of Borges' Library of Babel. I think the author's name is William Goldblum. Um, I could be wrong about that, but uh, he calculated that the number of books in the library are is 25 to the 1,312,000th power. Mm. Um, or let's see, or 10 to the 1,834,97th power. There's a number of ways of describing okay. the number, but if it's one with 1,834,097 zeros after it, okay? Right. So <laughs> our universe cannot even touch the Library of Babel. If our universe consisted of nothing but books, each book were only the size of a grain of sand, it could only hold 10 to the 90th power of books, and it would still take 10 to the 1,834,007th power more of our universes in order to hold all the books. Wow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that guy just so, did that for fun he just yeah. did that calculation for fun yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, just imagine good. how hard Powerful. getting the nut is in that situation that's right guys. yeah but but right. nutcranker is in there it is in mm, there good to know yeah yeah. Mm. yeah and there's no if i remember right there's no there's no pattern to it there's not a book next to a book for any particular reason it's everyone is a sort of a random instantiation of this it's a the the question of the organization apparently no i would i would infer that no there's no there's no like filing system to it right um but the question of like what you know how the books are you know organized is an interesting question yeah. that i think is really addressed yeah it's i know it smells crazy in there <laughs> <laughs> right probably smells like uh yeah. used books yeah but then yeah. It, yeah, does he even get into things like the odor? No, it's only the no. typography. Okay. Yeah. Well, he, I, I don't remember exactly what physical details he does, but he does, uh, you know, he's gonna, he gives it to you enough that you can visualize it, right? He talks about the hexagon and that ends up being a very striking image as I recall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, the bees is the first thing that you're gonna, the beehive is, is what you're gonna mm -hmm. think of with the hexagons. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like a mathematically like perfect organizational thing, you know, mm -hmm. all of the hexagons kind of. You know, yep. um, yep. yeah, uh, but I do recall a detail of him saying that there are these little light light bulbs that are um, 
uh, insufficient and incessant, I think he says. So it's kind of like, he's kind of darkly funny with stuff like that. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, okay, so that's good. I, I wanted to make sure we're, we're given this flavor of what these stories, some of these stories are like. Now, this isn't these, uh, there are other kinds of stories and other, uh, we talked about there's poetry and, and, and there's nonfiction writing. Um, I kind of hate the word nonfiction, uh, but what else, what else are you going to call it? I guess I, you know, um, I love the word fiction as a way mm-hmm. just to describe Borges's writing mm-hmm. because you know, he has these stories that take the form of, you know, like philosophical proofs or reviews of non-existent books. And sometimes when you're reading his essays, they read the same way that the stories do. Yeah. So rather than thinking of them as stories, just thinking of them as fictions, which just really just means a made up thing. Yeah. Um, is an interesting um kind of conceptual category. Yeah, I do like that. I do like that. Um I'm going to give, I want to set up um, a couple of things. I'm going to read a little bit from the Edwin uh, Wilson biography again, just because I want to set up a couple uh, of things that are going to stick around with Borges for his whole life. And these are going to, we're going to see these kind of come up a couple of times. Okay. So this is again in his childhood. Quote, young Georgie, however, felt overwhelmed by the force of this collective female yearning to recover the glories of the past. This is his mother, um, his mother talking about the honor of the family, right? It transmitted to him an expectation that he somehow take up the hero's sword once more and fill the void at the heart of the family's self-esteem. In his autobiographical essay, Borges was quite explicit about the effect upon him of this ancestor worship. Um, This is quoting Borges. As most of my people had been soldiers, even my father's brother had been a naval officer, and I knew I never would be, I felt ashamed quite early to be a bookish kind of person and not a man of action. Um, The sort of honor undermined Borges' faith in himself to such a degree that he felt he could not be truly loved by his parents. Okay, a little further down the page. The boy was a worry to his parents. Like many premature babies, he was weak and sickly. His eyesight was poor. And when he started to talk, he distorted words so badly that that his mother became concerned that his hearing might not be normal. He was also an extremely anxious child who suffered from frequent nightmares. The terrors that seized the boy seemed to have been connected with the sense of inadequacy that afflicted him as a child. He used to have bad dreams about peeling off his face and finding someone else's uh, beneath it or of taking off a mask only to discover that he was wearing another. Similar anxieties invaded his waking life, too. He was frightened of mirrors, even shrinking from his own image when he saw it on the polished mahogany of the furniture in his bedroom. At times, he imagined he could see someone else's face staring back at him, and he hated having to look in the mirror anyway, as if his own reflection threatened to rob him of the sense of who he really was. Quote, as a boy, I used to fear that mirror might reveal to me another face or blind and personal mask, doubtless hiding some atrocities, uh, uh, some atrocious being. <clears throat> this of a horror of reflections would lead to his perverse fascination as an adult with doubles, reproductions, copies, facsimiles, translations, with anything indeed that could undermine the uniqueness of an object or a person by dint of repeating it. In one of his poems, he would call a mirror the stuff of magic because you dare multiply the number of things we are and which define our lot. After I am dead, you shall copy someone else and then another and another and another and another. So... Some of the stuff we're seeing in Tlon, Library Babel, it's it's bubbling up, you know, when he's a child. Um, I was interested to know what his 
education was because he's he's one of these people who like I don't know who the most well-read person ever was, but Borges is up there. Um read everything it seems um up until the point where he lost his vision which we're going to talk about later um but the truth is he barely had any schooling at all uh when he came time to go to school remember he's living in this near tierra del fuego his neighborhood's known more for knife fighting than anything else um the school nearby was was for poor kids from that neighborhood and so his parents didn't send them send him at first they kept him with a with his english tutor miss tink um and then of course he had the library he had his father who um encouraged his reading and also taught him some of the basic um some basics of philosophical territory that Borges would cover later teaching him about idealism with capital i uh Zeno's paradox and other stuff right um i want to read you a little bit Honestly, um, you know, uh, I think that uh, I read my rich anarchist father's library beats any Oxford or Sorbonne <laughs> you could, you know, come up with. It, it you does. Know. It does. If you're a smart <laughs> reader. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. This is a reminder that if you subscribe to Patreon and you want Art of Darkness to print you an MFA, we, we will do it. <laughs> we will print it for you. You might have to yeah. pay for postage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But if you subscribe for long enough, yes, just email us at, at artofdarkpod at gmail.com. It'll, it'll have arts. Comic Sans. Yeah. Uh, it'll have Brad and my <laughs> signatures on it, but it'll be like digital signatures. We're not yeah. going to give our actual signatures uh, yeah. out over the internet. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be great. You'll be a master of fun arts. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, not allowed to say what the MF stands for. Right. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Do get the cash. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, let me read this bit from uh, autobiographical essay, which is a, which is an interesting essay Borges wrote. Um, quote: A tradition of literature ran through my father's family. His great uncle Juan Christos Christostomo Lafenur was one of the first Argentine poets, and he wrote an ode to, on the death of his friend General Manuel Belgrano in 1820. Um, there was one specific part. I'm not going to read all of this, but I wanted to get. Uh, let's see. My father wrote a novel, which he published in Mallorca in 1921, about the history of Entre Rios. It was called the Cadillo. Uh, he also wrote and destroyed a book of essays and published a translation of um, Omar Khayyam in the same meter as the original. He destroyed a book of the Oriental stories in the manner of the Ar- Ar- uh, Arabian Nights and a drama called Toward Nothingness about a man's uh, disappointment in his son. He published some fine sonnets after the style of the Argentine poet Enrique uh, Enrique Banks. Um, and from the time I was a boy, when blindness came to him, it was tacitly understood that I had to fulfill the literary destiny that circumstances had denied my father. This was something that was taken for granted. I was expected to be a writer. I first started writing when I was six or seven. I tried to imitate classic writers of Spanish, Cervantes, for example. I had set down in quite bad English a kind of handbook on Greek mythology. Um, This may have been my first literary venture. My first story was a rather nonsensical piece after the manner of Cervantes, an old-fashioned romance called The Fatal Helmet. I very nearly wrote these things into my into copy. I very neatly wrote these things into copybooks. My father never interfered. He wanted me to commit all my own mistakes and once said, quote, children educate their parents, not the other way around. That's the problem with having an anarchist father uh when I, when I was nine or so i translated oscar wilde's the happy place into spanish and it was published in one of the uh, buenos aires dailies 
Uh, since it was signed merely Jorge Borges, people naturally assumed the translation was my father's. So just kind of laying the groundwork, I mean, the he felt a certain expectation that he would be a writer. Um, his father sort of expected his father was basically a failed writer um, and wanted wanted this sort of out of his son. But then, but also was wasn't giving uh, Borges any advice it was like, here's a library. Um, figure it out. <laughs> uh which is interesting. You know, I I find it very significant that his first published work is a translation um because uh, what we you know we talked about his genres of sto- stories, essays and poems, but um he was a very important translator and also a notorious one. Some of his translations uh verge on pranks because he right. was known for changing details almost willy-nilly and sometimes he would you know be confronted with this by interviewers that, that that's not what happened in the story and he would say well i was referring to my translation of course right um, <laughs> yeah yeah he took some liberties but he also was i think he was the first person to translate any of ulysses into spanish um, he was also, he translated K- Kafka. He basically introduced Franz Kafka to the Spanish speaking world, um, through via translation. So yeah, yeah Faulkner he, he, too. Faulkner as well. Yeah. Yeah. How is he so turned on to, to that? I mean, those are all right. heavies. Was he, right. he was just a literati, a I hardcore literature guy. In. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Yeah. He was born. He's going to find it. I mean, he's, 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 we're going to find like, he's, he's a nerd and he's kind of a scene kid like he's like a crate you know those kids who were like crate diggers who just like you know you're gonna find the most obscure record imaginable he's a little yeah. bit like that but for books well right? if you read this is one of the cool things about his selected non-fiction if you go through that which it's selected it's not everything that he wrote mm-hmm. essays on but the range of books that he writes reviews about is insane. I mean, all the normal things you would think of, like Joyce and Kafka, but then just like these really obscure science fiction novels and mystery novels in multiple languages. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that was definitely like a an influence on me, which is early on getting into Borges and um, trying to track down um, some of these writers that he's talking about. So yeah, that yeah. was quite influential on me. Yeah, and he had a certain linguistic uh, versatility too. I mean, he learned German to read Schopenhauer, apparently. Um, yeah, yeah, that's Amazing. a very good reason. Yeah. Uh, now, okay, so just I want a little clarity here. Sure. Did he have exquisite taste, or was he translating lots of other people that maybe we haven't heard of? No, I think he had exquisite taste. Uh, okay. You know, I don't know everything he translated, but I think he ended up being sort of the literary tastemaker of Buenos, uh, Buenos Aires after a while, not, you know, not as a child, obviously, but, but eventually. Um, right. He, yeah, he yeah. has a couple of good essays on translation. One is called the Homeric versions in which he compares versions of Homer. And one is called the translators of the Arabian nights or the thousand and one nights, a mm-hmm. book that was very important to him. And you can kind of get like his philosophy of translation in that because he, he compares some of the famous translators like Richard Burton, and he describes all the ways in which they are not faithful translators, but then um, winds up, you know, letting you know that he doesn't think that's a bad thing because he kind of excoriates this German translator of uh, the Thousand and One Nights because it's it's so disappointing that we aren't getting a German 
thousand and one nights because that could have been amazing given mm. um you know the german philosophy and literature's proclivity for strangeness so mm, interesting yeah yeah we'll talk about well we'll talk about this a little later i do want to talk about how much he loved the english language um but we're gonna i think we'll i think we'll move we'll get to that um yeah, just fascinating with it. He would also later learn Anglo-Saxon, like old old English. He would basically learn old English. He would learn a little bit of Icelandic to, in order to read the sagas. Um, he was just fascinated with that sort of thing. Um, so when he's 12 years old, <clears throat> they do finally send him to uh, school. He's basically the only kid, the only sort of middle-class kid in a school full of toughs, right? children of knife fighters imagine right um he finishes fourth grade there but the following year according to the biography he is beat up and bullied and harassed so badly that they just take him out of school um i yeah. mean do i have to say anything i mean let's <laughs> let's be real that does not surprise me at no. all no yeah no it's, it's the kind of stuff that, in there got a lot of threads spinning around and old <laughs> Borges had what do they call him Georgie old Georgie's yeah. noggin probably yeah. going too fast for the boys in the uh yeah. in the yard yeah. yeah for sure um uh 1913 a couple years after they took him out of school they try to send him to school again and he suffers a quote accident uh which is very likely him getting beat up again because he comes home with broken glasses etc and he says he fell down some stairs or something um this combined this, all of this combined with the fact that his father's whose health had taken a real dive and could whose vision was getting worse and worse and worse and who was also having a sort of a midlife crisis according to edwin edwin williamson they decide they're they're just going to move the whole family to europe for an indefinite period of time so you know as you do um <laughs> so the whole board has family dad mom nora uh georgie's uh, sister uh, there is something and... that's more satisfying about being beaten up in the old country well, a little bit <laughs> that's yeah. right. there's more context uh yeah. somehow it feels yeah. like you're more connected historically right. to right. your ancestors <laughs> who were also beaten up right. in the old country that's why in they the left country. why they left what are we what are we doing back here <laughs> uh they also took grandma suarez which I, I just think is a charming detail. She came with, she came to Europe with him uh, in February of 1914. Uh, the plan is for Borges's dad and mom to drop the kids off with grandma in Geneva, and then they're going to go tour the continent before they everybody settles in London. However, 1914, there's other stuff happening in Europe. You might have heard about it. Uh, World War One interrupts. They end up being. Uh, staying in Geneva through through World War One, basically, um, they put Georgie into school there. Uh, they lie that he was younger than he was because it was the only way it was going to work out this particular school. And so he kind of struggled socially and with the curriculum. He didn't know any French, and it's a French school. He eventually learned French, of course, because you know we're talking about a, like a one ninety verbal IQ kind of guy. I think um, Switzerland's uh, a perfect country for him because they have four official languages. Right, right, right. Can you name all four official languages um, in the Schweiz? Swiss, German, well, French. Nope. No. Nope. Swiss is German. Switzer oh, Dutch. Uh no, yeah. no, no. It's it is a trick question. So it's it's German. <laughs> yeah. Uh it is French. It is Italian. And it's a fourth one, retro Romanish. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
What is yes. that one? What is yeah. that? <laughs> Have you, I, I will. I'll come. I've never back. even heard that word. Okay. I will come back with an explanation of what retro romanish is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Holly, holly, hello to the. Okay. Uh, is it Swiss is listeners. it related to Ruskot? Gypsies yeah. at all? Uh, I'm going to find out. Okay. <laughs> it's very obscure. This is perfect for the Borges episode. Brad, yeah. you proceed, and I'll come back sure. at an appropriate yeah. time. Okay. Right. So they put uh, they put Georgie in this school. Um, and his father, there's a, there's a funny story. His father's getting bad vision, but his father's also kind of a philanderer. So there's a story about his father being on the street in Geneva and making a pass at a woman. And the woman turns to him and it's his wife, which I just think, I just think that's hilarious. And his, he can't see, he just sees like, you know, a, the shape of what may be an attractive woman. And he says, oops, sorry, you thought you were somebody yeah. else. I yeah. <laughs> thought you were somebody else. I'll see you later. What's for dinner? Yeah. <laughs> um, Georgie would make some friends here. <laughs> uh, I've gone Geneva. down the rabbit hole of, oh, yeah, of retro romance. Yeah. Okay. I, I, for some reason I thought it was retro romance or whatever, but it's okay. romance. After dark, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. <laughs> We're gonna go into this. It's okay. Very fun. Right, okay. I very like it. Fun. I like it. Yes. Okay. Good. All right. Um Georgie would make some friends uh in Geneva. The best the, the two best friends he had were a couple of Jewish kids, and this would be significant later on because he would stand a thwart anti-Semitic um trends in Argentina later in his life. And it's probably partially related to this experience with, you know, two of his best friends. His first real friends were were a couple of Jewish kids, right? Um he would, as this wore into his teenage years, he would stay out late doing sort of the typical thing, stay out late drinking, wandering the streets, that sort of thing. He gets very into German expressionism at this time, um, becomes obsessed with a range of German writers. He becomes obsessed with Walt Whitman. Um, who's you know rap the all about the rapturous vitality would become for a model for Borges, which I don't think most people who come to Borges through the short stories like the ones we've talked about would characterize it as rapturous vitality. But um, this was something. Uh, this was a a touchstone for him. Was this kind of Whitman esque transcendent quality? Um, he would Borges would become something of a revolutionary, sort of sympathetic to the communists, never quite a member of them, uh, and for many years, maybe his whole life, basically believed that part of the role of a writer was to be politically active, politically aware, enmeshed in the political dialogue, right, and trying to push it in the direction that they think it should go. Um, whether you know that's what he thought anyway. Um, in Geneva, 1918, Georgie, and I don't know if I've characterized him well enough, he's a bit of an awkward guy um, later in life. He's 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 sort of form factor, kind of slubbish. He's His eyesight is not good, so for a long time he's wearing thick glasses until eventually there's really no point. Um, uh, and sort of people have described him as sort of looking older than he was at times. Um, not the sort of you know, trying to think of somebody else we've done who is like a physical, physical specimen. I don't think anybody was calling Borges a physical specimen. Um, Brando. Brando. Was, yeah. He's yeah. no Brando. Okay. Yeah. None of us are. Toe. The, go to the actors. I mean, generally. Yeah, right. That's a, yeah, right. 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 Mm -hmm. um, nonetheless, he had his first uh, love affair with this girl named Emily. We don't know much about her except that she was of low status, social status, uh, had, according to Borges, a quote, dazzling body and had a mane of red hair. Um, Borges has a thing for redheads. Uh, it shows up in the books and there's actually more to it than I would have realized. Um, part of the thing with the red, 
The color red was associated with the tyrant uh, Rosas, who we mentioned earlier, who Borges' mother blamed for bringing the whole family down, right? Um, and the color red was not allowed in their house. This is how big of a deal Rosas was to his mother. And so Borges, who felt controlled and hemmed in by his mother throughout his life, and we're going to talk more about it, I think saw maybe on a subconscious level. I mean, Edwin Wilson makes Williamson in the biography makes kind of a big deal of it. I don't think he's wrong, but who knows what causes these things. I think there might've been something. He was always attracted to women. His mother didn't like, um, she didn't like really anybody. So it wasn't that many hard. such but... cases. <laughs> so he finds a kind of a lower class, lower class, red hit, crazy red redhead. Head. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's mm. his, that's his thing. Now, uh, uh, now, this starting to kind of happen. It's starting to to occur. I, there's no apparent sexual relations. Um, but here's something that happens around this time that Borges never gets over. I'm going to read from the. I'm going to read from the biography. Um, I hope. I uh, hope I will. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> quote. At around the time of Georgie's 19th birthday, uh, Doctor Borges, that's his father, asked his son whether he had ever slept uh, with a woman. And when Georgie replied that he had not father resolved to do something to help the youth negotiate the usual rites of passage to manhood. I don't know if this is true, but it says it in the book. In, it, was the custom, in, it was the custom in Argentina for fathers or uncles to arrange for the initiation of adolescent males with a prostitute in a brothel. And so in accordance with this practice, Dr. Borges gave Georgie the address of a flat uh, on, the, on some street, which was in the red light district not too far from where they lived and told him that a woman would be waiting there. Most young men approach their first experience of sexual intercourse with considerable apprehension. And when Borges finally reached the woman's flat, he was in a state of high anxiety. As it turned out, it appears that he was uh, too precipitate in his approach and did not fully go through with his initiation. This unsurprising uh, adolescent setback, however, seems to have been exceptionally traumatic for Georgie. In a, pro in a poem written over 30 years later, he would refer to this encounter in what he called a mercenary bedroom in Europe with excessive self-punishing shame. So couldn't do it. Couldn't go through with it. Felt pushed into it. Felt awkward. Felt estranged from his father. All of that. Um, you still got to pay the bill. Still, still, you do still have to pay the bill. <laughs> I guess maybe. I don't know. It depends. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I, don't I don't know, know how it works. I, I mean, I don't know how it was. Yeah. yeah. But this uh, was this was not an uncommon practice uh, in quite a lot of places. I don't think this is mm -hmm. unique to uh, that place. I think it was of the time in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of wild to think about. Yeah. Now, hey, son, out of, hey, son yeah. I've got you your first e-girl. Right. It's <laughs> weird. It's just weird. It's very bizarre. Very yeah. strange. It's yeah. it's weird to me. I mean, maybe it doesn't feel that weird if that's what everybody does, but yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um uh here's a little bit more on Borges and and just I guess and women, basically. Again, asterisk because this is the Williamson bio, and I think maybe he's stretching things a little bit, but um, quote, Borges indeed would experience an intense ambivalence towards women. On the one hand, he regarded love as the gateway to personal fulfillment and as entailing, therefore, a rebellion against the oppressive authority of the sword of honor. This whole thing of like having to live up to the family name, right? He would be drawn in consequence to women of whom mother would not approve. And these women would be idealized as goddesses who had the power to bring him unutterable happiness. 
On the other hand, he was wary of putting himself to the test uh, to the test with these forbidden goddesses because desire was so strongly associated with the degradation and shame that sexual activity could be conducted only in the illicit obscurity of the brothel. So, you know, maybe he has a little bit of a complex. I think we're going to see that play out. Yeah, it, I, I've just, you know, in preparation for this, read through the entirety of his fictions, and he doesn't write po- like very positively about romantic love until his very late stories mm-hmm. like in the late 70s and 80s mm-hmm. i'm talking about and yeah. prior to that the the female figures in the books tend to be these kind of distant uh you know um idealized just like you were saying uh mm-hmm. figures of you know or perhaps love is unrequited or there's some some reason that they're not you know directly engaging so yeah he doesn't He's not really able to deal with them as like just human other human beings, really. It doesn't seem. Um, now, there's something. So one thing that always happens, uh, or doesn't always happen, happens a couple of times. Borges does have this relationship with this woman named Emily. Um, he's what, 19 years old. Um, but just as the relationship is sort of heating up in 1919, uh, the father, fa- Dr. Borges, his father picks up the whole family again and moves them all to Mallorca. Um, and so the relationship just basically falls apart. This happens again in the future. He And, you know, it, it gets tricky because, you know, it's one thing when you're 13, your parents move, you kind of got to go with them. You start to get 19, 20, it starts to be like, well, do I have to go? Like, couldn't I just stay? You know, you start to get this issue of like, of, you're going to have to you're going to have to push back at some point at some point one of these moves isn't going to be good for you right you got your own thing going and this is where this conflict with Borges and sort of rebelling against his family starts to heat up but he never well we're going to see but keep that in mind he has this thing where he needs to rebel against the family and he's incapable of rebelling against the family at the same time um in Mallorca He's writing a little bit. Uh, they live They live there for a while, and then they live in Seville for a little while. And then in Seville, he meets the Ultra. All right, so the Ultraists, or the practitioners of Ultraism. Uh, what is this? What is the Ultra? Which I think is a cool way to call it, the Ultra. Basically, it's a Spanish avant-garde movement inspired by the civilian writer, uh, Rafael Cancinos Asins, who happens to be the cousin of Rita Hayworth, for, I don't know, just unusual. Didn't Only 25,000 people alive at a good <laughs> right. time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, all ties called, together. They're right, all translating right. each other, too. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this guy called, and where the ultra comes from, this guy called for young poets to become, quote, ultra romantic. Um, this was inspired by the works of Apollinaire, Marinette, uh, Jean Cocteau, and a number of others working in France and Italy. Basically, it was a Spanish avant-garde inspired entirely by French and Italian writers, mostly a little bit of German expressionism. Um, Borges would end up getting a lot of ins- inspiration from this movement. Uh, he had a lot of excitement about just being part of a scene. Remember, he didn't have friends growing up either. Like, 
he just started having friends as a teenager. Now he's like 19, 20. He's meeting all these other literary people who are doing interesting things. Um, so, you know, he doesn't have a job. He, he doesn't have school. All he has to do is whatever he wants to do, basically. And so he's hanging, hanging, uh, getting great deal of fulfillment out of hanging in the Tertulia, which is basically just a salon, except you have it at like a diner or a bar. Um, long conversations into the night, you know, long and deep into the night, fueled by booze and coffee and cigarettes um, until he came around. Eventually, you know, he started sort of as an outsider in the ultra movement and then kind of gravitated towards the center of it um, and began to understand that what the ultra was, the Spanish avant-garde, was, quote, above all, an attempt to create new myths, to write in a way that would allow each artist to form a universe in his own image. Um this is an important waypoint on the evolution of Borges into the writer that we know, because at this point, obviously, he's not. He's written some poetry and a few other odds and ends. Um, from the ultra, um, from the ultraists, he takes this notion uh, uh, and the techniques associated with it of plastic metaphors, concision, created images, which these things I think still live on into his later work, right? Um, from the symbolists, he's taking sanctity and primacy of the metaphor from Whitman, uh, and to some degree, the altruists, he's taking the importance of creative passion, uh, of confessionalism. Uh, um, interestingly, he talks about Argentina being a very stoical country, which I don't know if that's true. I've never spent any time there, but he describes Argentine personality as being very stoic. I don't know how true that is. I'd be interested to know. Um <clears throat> Um, early in this uh, ultra time period, um, he would begin to recognize and try to express this sort of he, he he's evolving as a writer. So he's starting to understand his own mind a little bit right up until the point of meeting the ultraist. It's all about what he's read. And he's starting to kind of look in that mirror a little bit. Because remember, he's a young young man. He doesn't even want to look in mirrors. He doesn't even want to see his face reflected in mahogany, right? But at some point, he's got to start taking a look at himself. And it's when he's in these conversations with these altruists. Because he's saying to himself, well, okay, what am I? What do I do? What do I write, right? And it's all about the individual expression. So um, very, very interesting stuff. And he's taking Whitman as a model, which I did not see coming, frankly. I did not think Borges was going to be influenced by Whitman to this degree. I'm sure we're uh, going to get into this later, but there is something like he he does something with that Whitman influence. Like it's there, mm -hmm. there's an aspect to his uh, writing and, you know, he's like, he becomes like the master of the heterogeneous list, which I think is something that he does get from Whitman, but mm -hmm. it, it's not, it, he makes it Borgesian. It, it doesn't really sound uh, like Whitman, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Um, yeah, we'll talk about it. I think in the Aleph, when we talk about the Aleph, we'll get we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, the ultra movement would grow into journals and all of these sorts of things, a lot of which Borges would be intimately involved in. And then Borges writes an ultra manifesto. I'm going to read a little bit of that. We love manifestos on Art of Darkness. Uh, in this quote, is manifesto. that on Art of Darkness? Bingo! Is it should be. Manifesto. No, we're getting it. Yeah, somebody's got to do one for 2023, and I think we've got to, we've got mother issues today. Mother we've issues. got manifesto. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Links uh, to all manifestos will yeah. not be found in the show notes. No, we don't. We, we don't want the pod those. to uh, yeah. thrive for a very long time. That's mm. right. 
Um, in his uh, manifestation, uh, sorry, in his manifesto of the ultra, Borges made a distinction between the pass, the quote passive aesthetics of the mirror and the quote active aesthetics of the prism. The aim of the ultra was to achieve a quote naked vision of the world, a vision quote purified of ancestral stigmas, and quote in order to conquer such a vision, uh, it was necessary to quote throw overboard the whole of the past. Classical aesthetics, romanticism, naturalism, symbolism, quote, the whole of that vast absurd cage in which the ritualists wish to imprison the marvelous bird of beauty. Everything must be jettisoned until we can each of us design our own subjective creation. This aggressive manifesto provoked the desired reaction from his enemies, and Borges was beside himself with glee, reporting to Sarita, a friend of his, that they had caused a major scandal. Quote, a pack of fossils, among them Elviro Sands, is threatening to beat us to death with their walking sticks. Did you see that pinprick by uh, uh, by Pin? Somebody named Pin? I don't know. The the Correo de Omor, uh, the Correo de Mallorca, which is a Catholic newspaper, is preparing a refutation of the manifesto and an auto de fe of the poems. Uh, Borges could picture himself as a great rebel at last. So he likes being involved in this scene. Like he likes being part of a scene at this point. And you can see there's something interesting that I think a lot of young writers, it's maybe it's a necessary phase to go through where you occupy this part where you're like, we don't need any of the tradition. We don't need any of this stuffy nonsense from the past. We're going to create our own path, you know? And um, there's something to that, but you know, you can't throw everything away, right? Like there's a lot of good stuff, like throwing away um classical aesthetics romanticism naturalism and symbolism just throw all that away and then figure out how to write something it's like well it might not be as easy as you think uh you know you mentioned um this interest of his in in um the mirror image and the double and he has some stories throughout his career in which he uh talks to his own double and mm -hmm. in one of them is he's writing as an old man and he happens to sit by himself on a bench and it's basically like the younger version of him it's it's him at this time and um they're talking about their kind of differences precisely on this issue of mm -hmm. um the the younger version thinks that you know one has to make up completely new metaphors whereas the older one has kind of come to terms with the fact that the old ones really are the best um mm -hmm. and you should kind of just stick with uh the classics so to speak and he does come around to yeah a lot of these traditional things but on his own terms right um, for instance you know the myth of the the labyrinth and the minotaur and those kind of things he will he will employ them in a way that uh that yeah is... yeah and i think that's a necessary part of the i mean i was kind of picking on it but i do think it is a bit of a necessary part of the evolution right you have to sort of you have to figure this you, you have to relearn why all that stuff is important it, it's not enough to just be told it's important right yeah um yeah, very good. I'm glad you mentioned that story. I just read that story last night, and uh, it was the first time I had ever read it. I was, I was quite impressed by it. Um, and it, it's a great story. Part of the thing I like about it is the sly way that he, first person, he basically, he is Borges, the first person narrator of that story. And it's very like, yeah, it's kind of weird thing. He he presents it as though it happened. It Like, it actually happened. And he just has very sly techniques for getting that across to you he's not trying to convince you it's like he doesn't know quite if it happened or not um it's, inter it's interesting um after seven years 
the Borges family moves back to Argentina. Um, he comes back sort of excited about all of this ultra stuff, finding, thinking he's starting to find his voice as a writer. Um, he, uh, you know, he's read a lot that he didn't read. I mean, that's seven years, mostly his teenage years. This was a big formative period for him. Most of it was spent in Geneva. Um, and yet he comes back to a country he doesn't quite recognize in some ways because Argentina throughout the 20th century um, is its history is tumultuous. It's it's changes dramatically from year to year at times. Um, there was a, uh, a radical politician named Irigoyen who Borges favored, who'd failed to break up all the oligarchies. Um, and when Borges comes back, he sort of sees that what was bad about Argentina when he left was still there. But now there was a sort of general incomprehension of art and the wealthy classes, which used to try and show their status by their sophistication in artistic matters, books they owned, paintings they had, etc., now seem to be showing off their sophistication with cars and clothes. So he's seen this like materialistic move. Um, so uh, Borges, in the midst of this, decides he needs to bring the ultraist movement to Buenos Aires. What Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires needs is an avant-garde poetry movement. That will set this whole thing straight, <laughs> as you do. Um, Very reminiscent of Bolaño, and Bolaño mm -hmm. is obviously channeling Borges. And I think Borges so. Is, yeah, yeah, kind of, right? Yeah. That, mm -hmm. that reminds me... Um, Borges has, you know, a wide influence and many people have written, um, you know, Borges referencing uh, books, uh, even characters based on Borges, in fact. Um, but the only book that I've ever encountered that strikes me as very successfully Borgesian is Bolaño's Nazi literature in the Americas. I don't know if you guys have read that. I need to read that. It's a series of bi biographies of like made up far right figures in South America. Um, and yeah, it, it sounds just, like that just sounds like the group chat. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. You were yeah, saying do they have, an, yeah. do they have anime, anime, <laughs> anime, <avatars? laughs> no, yeah. Uh, Bodybuilders and yep. fun. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, no, yeah, that, that, that was just my point. It, it no. strikes me as like mm -hmm. a very successful, like Borgesian type of uh, approach yeah it's yeah we covered that on the do. bologna episode yeah. i recall yeah cool yeah. yeah that's a good poll yeah um okay so i'm going to read this bit about um committing himself to his uh well i'll just read it because it says what i was just going to say <clears throat> from the edwin williamson bio Borges decision to set up a branch of the ultra in buenos aires would in the due course revolutionize the argentine literary world so it worked sort of um, up till then, uh, the European avant-garde had made no impact at all. An Argentine writer writing was still uh, under the influence of modernismo, a movement based on the French symbolism uh, and Parnassianism, which had been founded by the great Nicaraguan poet Ruben Dario in the 1890s and had spread to all Spanish-speaking countries. Um, Dario's discipline uh, disciple in Argentina, Leopoldo Lugones, was the country's preeminent poet and his Lunario Sentimental of 1909, a late modernista work, still enjoyed immense prestige. Right. So this is the world he's in. It's it's got its particular style. It's almost what we would call in America like a regionalism. And Borges is going to show up. He's going to try and get some friends 
to write stuff. Their first big movement is they basically do a quote literary journal that is basically wheat paste posters that they put up around town. And it was either the first or second edition of they put a thousand of them up around Buenos Aires, right? So they were like taking it to the street. <laughs> it's very, very intentional, right? Um, and very, very idealistic and, you know, very enthusiastic um, and really going for it. You know, Borges would, you know, evolve from this point uh, to the writer we come to know. There'd be a lot of growth, but um, the enthusiasm is, runs deep. Um, okay. So right, this is, this is, uh, we're in the territory of poets as street gangs. Yeah, yeah. The, he's twenty the, years. He's twenty years old. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's 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 romanticizes knife fighters, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's a little a clockwork orange, but they're posting they're poetry, poetry, right? Ah, right, those right. poets. This will do it. This will show them. Yeah, yeah. this will show mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. We're gonna change the world. Right, right. Energy right. we need, guys. Right. It's true. Yeah, it's hey. true. I mean, yeah. and he did. Uh, so I know that's know. what that's the other thing. He becomes yeah. like the most it actually the most influential writers of his generation. Yeah. There you go. Um, so here's so now he, so he pretty quickly becomes uh a name in the avant-garde. Well, not even a name, he's the center of the avant-garde world in a lot of ways in Buenos Aires. Um, and he is now, of course, that makes him an available bachelor. Uh plus, you know, like I was saying, he doesn't have to work. Uh, it's not, it's a while yet before he ever gets anything resembling a job. Um, uh, he meets this girl, Concepcion, uh, Concepcion, uh, Guerrero, who becomes what you might call his second love after that woman, Emily in, in Geneva. Um, but we see a trend happen here, uh, or a trend continue. Uh, Borges mother does not like Concepcion, um, she doesn't like any of his potential lovers throughout his life. Uh, but uh, the big part of the reason is she is from a recently immigrated family. From They're Spanish, but they just got here. So they're not really Argentines, right? And there's a lot of conflict. I didn't Nothing realize... changes. <laughs> I didn't realize how many Italian immigrants were living in Buenos Aires. Like, it's a very large population, and they were very much disliked by families that had been there for a long time um just interesting dynamics um uh also so he's got this relationship going on with conception he loves her he promises he's going to marry her at some point um and then the family picks up and leaves buenos aires again and he has to go with them and again but at this point again he's like 21 or 22 years old and he has to like go with them Right, he's got this relationship. He's part of this literary scene at which he's like become the head of, and he's sort of got to like go on vacation all summer with mom and dad. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, now here's where we start getting caught up in his uh, where his romantic entanglements start getting. I don't even know how to describe it. A little intense from his side. Um. He thinks that what might save him from the drama, there's this concept that Edwin Williamson builds up in the biography called the drama of the sword and the dagger. And the sword's like the sword of, of honor, right? And the dagger is like the dagger that a gaucho uses to like stab a tiger in the fields, right? It's like passion versus honor. Um, and he's always kind of caught up in this, which should you pick up the sword or the dagger sort of thing? And he ultimately picks up neither of them is kind of what happens to him in his personal life. Um, what he thinks is 
going to save him from this wretchedness that he would call it of not being able to pick up the sword or the dagger. Um, his, you know, what went save him from his inability to be a man of action, his tendency towards being an intellectual versus somebody who can actually do anything in the world. He believes that his writing might save him, um, that this is going to redeem him somehow, right? Um, and in order to do that, in order to write, he must have inspiration. And uh, this whole process, he likens the experience of Dante in the Divine Comedy and the woman he, whoever, whoever bore his loves at the moment, he relates that woman to Beatrice, the symbol of divine love who guides Dante through Paradiso, through the Paradiso. Um, Dante, fact, we're covering later this year. And of are, course, yeah. uh, nice. idolizing, yeah. idolizing uh, women in your life like that will not lead to any problems whatsoever. It doesn't. No, 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 no problem. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> well, then you can proceed. Yeah, he's he's lucky in love throughout his entire life for his was. Uh, this total opposite. It's really the tragedy of his life is his sort of inability to do. There's some there's some final difficult to articulate thing that he just never can quite do. Um, Conception is the first woman that he likens to Beatrice, who will somehow no, save his soul. Right? Just do the dishes is that thing. By the way, it's, it's not. It's not. It's not that. It's like not. Yeah. It's okay. not like you know split the atom it's it's right. lots of fluid right. take the garbage out once in a yeah. while give her a back yeah. rub right 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 yeah um okay. yeah so uh i'm gonna read i think i'm gonna read this one little bit here if it's what i remember it being um okay so the relationship with Concepcion doesn't work out, right? Because the family moves and eventually he sort of lo uh, loses touch with her. But but it also doesn't work out because Borges is incapable of standing up to his mother, according to Ed Edwin Williamson. Quote, in the effective economy of Borges's imagination, mother's hatred of Rosas, that tyrant that terrorized the old family, was so potent that to oppose her was to come alive, while to seek her approval was somehow to submit to oppression. Thus, civilization was associated with a deadening conformity. Barbarism stood for passion, energy, fulfillment. The most arresting image in Rosas, a poem he wrote, uh, describes the pitiful whiteness of a tablecloth, which, quote, shrouds the red passion of the mahogany. Here, the color red is no mere cliche, for red was the color of Rosas' party, a color banned from the house by mother for its association with the federales, which, uh, with gauchos and with and so with infamy and barbarism. In this scheme of things, Georgie's love for Concepcion was unquestionably on the side of the tyrant Roses and the Reds. His love became politicized, so to speak, by the inflexibility of mother's prejudices, and in contrast to mother's fixation with her heroic forebears, he was to raise Concepcion into a symbol of a more contemporary, more egalitarian Argentina that would permit him to escape the ancestral sword of honor. That's always not a that's also not a good idea is to turn somebody into a symbol of something else for you, right? It's it's just not it's not a recipe for success. Um Okay, so uh yeah, oh, this periodic right. reminder that other people do exist. Right. It's important right. not to right. so you know this concept of theory of mind that children yeah. slowly develop where oh, I'm yeah. among other minds. Yeah. You don't want to be so far on the left of the bell curve that you yeah. fail to have theory of mind, yeah. but you also don't want to be on the other side, like right. like old Georgie, yeah. where you, yeah, yeah right, yeah. they yeah. are real people, right, and, uh, right. Let's just agree on that. Can yeah, we? that's a good okay. start. That's a good Very start. Good. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. 
Um, okay, so 1920 through now we're in like 1923 or so. Consider Borges like 24 years old, mid 20s. Um, what is he writing around now? Because the stuff we've talked about so far is all comes decades after where we are now in the biography. Um, there's he's he's basically trying actively and deliberately to redefine the literature of Argentina, which is an ambitious goal. Right. And he kind of ends up doing it sort of stumbly and bumbly and one misstep after another. Um, but to understand what that means, there's a couple of like aspects of Argentine, uh, Argentine culture that maybe we need to understand. Um, there's a debate going on within the avant-garde movement at this time about what their literature should be. Um, this, and it focuses a lot on the conflict between the gaucho and the cadillo, the 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 cowboy and the strong man, right? The the man on the plains who's sort of rugged and self reliant is one way to think about that, versus like the tyrannical order and honor thing. Um, of course, it's a yin yang, and there's a little bit of the other in each of those. Um, there's also the old family versus the immigrant. Um, uh, Borges is a, what you would call at the time a radical progressive. And so he sees Argentina as basically a melting pot um, that a new literature has to come out um, that doesn't pretend that Argentina is not part of the world. To Borges, Argent Argentina is a young country. Like part of the reason he despised nationalism is like he, we haven't even been around long enough to be nationalists. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is an interesting way which is an interesting counter to nationalism i think it's like well maybe in a hundred years we could be nationalists but right now i mean this place barely exists um <laughs> uh so he eventually starts to romanticize so he's, he's he's trying to figure out how to piece this all together um and what he's he begins to do is romanticize what's called the uh Arabal, which is basically the suburbs of buenos aires um and here's a poem he wrote sort of somewhat in this vein around this time. It came out in his first book of poetry, which was called Fervor de Buenos Aires. Um, I'll just read this quick. It's not, it's not long. <clears throat> Quote, I know the customs and the souls and that dialect of allusions and idioms which any human group contrives for itself. I need not claim or deny any privileges. I am well enough known by those around me who know well enough my sorrows and my weaknesses. This is to attain the highest goal. What may perhaps await us in heaven, not admiration or victory, but simply to be accepted as part of an undeniable reality, like the stones and the trees. I'm not super impressed by that personally. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but that's where he's at in 1923-24. Um, he's got a long way to go to become the Borges that we know, I think, at this point. Um, let's see. So, okay. Oh, this is one thing he did as self-promotion that I thought was very clever. So this book, Fervor de Buenos Aires, comes out. And, you know, how do you get people to read your book? I, I think about this all the time, right? Dan Baltic uh, was was on a while ago. His book came out. He's figuring out how do you get people to read this? You got to meme it into reality, right? Here's what Borges does. <clears throat> Quote, having noticed that many people who went to the offices of Nosotros, which was a, a journal, I think, um, left their overcoats hanging in the cloakroom, I brought 50 or 100 copies to uh, Alfredo Bianchi, one of the editors. Bianchi stared at me in amazement and said, do you expect me to sell these books for you? No, I answered. Although I've written them, I'm not altogether a lunatic. I thought I might ask you to slip some of these books into the pockets of the coats hanging out there. 
He generously did so. When I came back after a year's absence, I found that some of the inhabitants of the overcoats had read my poems and a few had even written about them. So he goes to the literary journal and he's just slipping them in people's pockets, which I think is a great move. That's a smart Mm -hmm. move. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) We need a nut cranker on every bedside table uh, at every hotel. That's right. A copy of Nut Cranker. Okay. So here's, I want to get, think about how to do this. Okay. So there's this concept he has that comes up in the title of the story, the Aleph. Uh, But there's also, the Aleph is more to him than just this story. There's, it's, I don't know, Kevin, if you remember when we talked about Terrence, Terrence McKenna, the transcendental object at the end of time. Vaguely. This, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, a lot, there's a lot of flying around. Listen, as soon as you say <laughs> the transcendental object at the end of time, I clearly yeah. know what you're talking about. Right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> but this is something that the Aleph is for him. The Aleph is like the, the thing that can sort of mystically reorient your mind and brain it's the part of you that can that can make you change it's beatrice from the from from the paradiso is an is a version of an aleph it's it's a mercurial it's almost like an alchemical substance in a way for him um the elephant in the room if you the elephant in the room <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i'm gonna um, go on mute now <laughs> so let's talk about that story the aleph because it's it's a ma- it's in my opinion it's it's a masterpiece i don't want to say what's the best and what's not but this one is perfect in my opinion almost yeah so eldest what do, what do we know about that story yeah uh it is a great story um so he again uh the the protagonist like in many borges stories the protagonist is essentially borges and he uh is has one of these unrequited love, uh, this obsession with this woman who happens to be named Beatrice, Beatrice Viterbo. And, you know, as the name indicates, she's probably more of an ideal than a human being. Um, and and she has recently passed away in the story. And the bulk of the story uh, really has to do with uh, this, uh, an acquaintance who is a cousin of Beatrice that he winds up hanging out with because you know, just because it's the only way to be kind of close to her in some sense is to um, hang out with this guy. And it, there's actually a lot of sly comedy in this story because he really doesn't like this guy at right. all. Right. Um, this guy is a, is a poet like him and he just drones on and on about his terrible poetry and this, um, and then the guy seems to know that Borges doesn't like him either, yeah. but he exploits the fact that he knows that because he knew he is related to Beatrice, so he's going to keep hanging out with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he's writing a poem called The Earth. It's a strange poem because it's basically based on geography. Mm-hmm. And he's right. It's essentially like a comp- the ambition of it. This is so Borges is to complete, completely describe planet Earth in a geographical sense and in like hexameter or whatever formal Mm -hmm. uh, verse that he's using. Um, And he sort of casually drops the information to Borges that, uh, because he's trying to appear appear cool to Borges, Mm -hmm. that he's right. The the reason he's able to write this is that he has an, uh, an Aleph in his basement. 
what's an Aleph? Mm -hmm. Well, an Aleph is a single point in space through which you can see all points in space simultaneously. And it happened to happens to exist under the some random number 17th stair of his basement. So mm. he shows it to Borges. He takes him down and Borges goes into the basement. He says, you have to lie in this position and you won't, won't see it for a second. But then if you sort of unfocus like a magic eye painting or whatever, it's going to show up. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, uh, he does this uh, skeptically at first and then the Olaf actually appears. Um, and I'll, I have the passage, but did you want to read it, Brad, or do you want yeah, me to go? Yeah, I can. I can read it. So yeah, um, we'll. Yeah, let me just find where exactly I want to start. So okay, yeah, um, yeah. This is this is a great Borges passage, and this is where he maybe gets his closest to his Whitman-esque transcendence that he was shooting for in his younger life. The Aleph was probably two or three centimeters in diameter. The universal space was contained inside it, with no diminution in size. Each thing, the glass surface of a mirror, let us say, was infinite things, because I could clearly see it from every point in the cosmos. I saw the populous sea, saw dawn and dusk, saw the multitudes of the Americas, saw a silvery spider web at the center of a black pyramid, saw a broken labyrinth, it was London, saw endless eyes, all very close, studying themselves in me as though in a mirror, saw all the mirrors on the planet and none of them reflecting me, saw in a rear courtyard on Calais Solar, the same tiles I'd seen 20 years before in the entryway of a house in Fray Bentos, saw clusters of grapes, snow, tobacco, veins of metal, water vapor, saw convex equatorial deserts and their every grain of sand, saw a woman in uh, Inverness whom I shall never forget, saw her violent hair, her haughty body, saw a cancer in her breast, saw a circle of dry soil within a sidewalk where there had once been a tree, saw a country house in a drogue, saw a copy of the first English translation of Pliny, saw every letter of every page at once. As a boy, I would be astounded that the letters in a closed book didn't get all scrambled up together overnight. Saw so simultaneous night and day, saw a sunset in Querétaro that seemed to reflect the color of a rose in Bengal. Saw my bedroom, saw in a study in Alkmaar, a globe of the terraqueous world placed between two mirrors that multiplied it endlessly. Saw horses with wind-whipped manes on a beach in the Caspian Sea at dawn. Saw the delicate bones of a hand. Saw the survivors of a battle sending postcards. Saw a tarot card in a shop window in Mirzapur. Saw the oblique shadows of ferns on the floor of a greenhouse. Saw tigers, pistons, bisons, tides, and armies. Saw all the ants on earth. Saw a Persian astrolabe. Saw in a desk drawer, and the handwriting made me tremble, obscene, incredible, detailed letters that Beatrice had sent Carlos Argentino saw a beloved monument in Chacarita, saw the horrendous remains of what had once deliciously been Beatrice Vertibo, Vertibo, saw the circulation of my dark blood, saw the coils and springs of love and the alterations of death, saw the Aleph from everywhere at once, saw the earth and the Aleph and the Aleph once more and the earth and the earth and the Aleph, saw my face and my viscera, saw your face and I felt dizzy and I wept because my eyes had seen that secret hypothetical object whose name had been usurped by men but which no man has ever truly looked upon, the inconceivable universe. Precisely how I felt when I first got America online. Yeah, <laughs> you, got, you get that disc in the mail. Well, you know, yeah, it's a funny joke, but mm. there's quite a been quite a bit mm. written about Borges and the internet. Mm -hmm. I mean, he seems to foresee this. I mean, it's uh, of course they would never like complete the project, but it's Google Earth, mm -hmm. right? Like the, mm -hmm. the ambition of this is to completely record everything. And mm -hmm. theoretically, you could get a God's eye view. I mean, even the 
the Library of Babel, as I described it, this total um, library that exhausts the possibilities of the language, is what is it but a an execution of a very powerful but simple algorithm so that it becomes kind of a model of art, artificial intelligence in a way, mm -hmm. and at mm -hmm. least at least raises some of the same philosophical issues that AI art does, for instance, like mm -hmm. what could be the meaning of a novel that had no human intention behind it, but 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 is a coherent novel. You know what I mean? Right. It's just output by an algorithm and it just happens to be me appear meaningful to you. So is it meaningful? Yeah. Yeah. Right. But the really funny thing about the story is yeah, and this is like a great lyrical passage. After mm -hmm. that happens, the the annoying cousin shows up again and was like, oh, so ah, you're never yeah. gonna you're never going to be able to repay me this gift of and so Borges has to kind of play this down like it wasn't it was like, Yeah, I saw it, whatever, see you later, thank you. Right. He has to kind of no play it deal. down like it wasn't a big deal <laughs> that he just saw this. <laughs> right. No, that part is hilarious. I was into the Aleph before yeah. they blew up. Yeah, it used to be I, cool. I heard the but... Aleph mixtape, right? <laughs> exactly. But it, it gets even better, right? Now, I think yeah. this is a this is the real Borgesian twist to this, and and I, I want to bring up a possibility that I don't think I've ever encountered before here, which is that he suggests I don't know why or where this comes from, but that what he saw was not the true. Olive, which is okay. to say that it might have errors in it, right. like what he saw isn't really real, and that somewhere the real God's eye view copy or whatever vision exists. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's neat little touches in that description, like the fact that he saw your face, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that, of course, he includes the Olive in the Olive so that you know, the infinite recursion shows up because you can mm -hmm. now, if the Olive is not the true Olive, what I want to um, propose is possibly that when you look in the Olive inside the Olive, instead of being an infinite loop, because if it's not the true Olive, it may be, it may be something that has copying errors involved, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe that happens again when you look at the olive inside the olive and it just keeps going on. And so that after how many, you know, permutations of this, do you get down into some sort of crazy mutated freak world? Mm -hmm. That's like these descending universes, like in the Gnostic cosmology where eventually you get down into you know the, <laughs> the, yeah. the so far removed from reality that you're in the black iron prison you know right 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 yeah see i think yeah i think he's that's really interesting i mean i think he is kind of implying it that right because there is a notion that like if this isn't the real aleph and you're looking through it and you're seeing the world then that isn't the real world so then what is the real world it's the real the real world is where the the world where the real aleph exists like it gets it gets it, it yeah and of course <laughs> gets, the possibility that you know we're in somebody else's aleph you know yeah right and this plays in with the whole the sort of internet stuff too right because there are simulations within simulations right i mean what would what would a simulation if you could simulate the planet earth and then you could look at it from the God's eye view. That's sort of like looking into the false Aleph, 
right? Yeah. You think you have this godlike dominance over this over this reality. But all these ideas that are very common to us now and even played out in a certain mm-hmm. way, like the the um, simulation theory or the multiverse, they they show up in all these Borges stories. Um, even though he he never explicitly writes about technology, there are always no. these magical objects. Yeah. Yeah. He's not interested that's, in any technology that's newer than the book. Really. Right. That's what that's what an aspect of it that's quite interesting too, right? And it's like he can play all of the same thought experiments that we're trying ham-fistedly to play out about technology now, right? Um, yeah. It what a um, vision. Yeah. Incredible, really. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to take a little side trick because the Aleph is is symbolically one of his most interesting stories. I want to talk about his fascination with the Kabbalah just for a minute. Um, uh, because it seems relevant to me and he's always sort of playing at it. He's always sort of suggesting his knowledge. And then in 1932, he writes an essay called A Defense of the Kabbalah. And I just want to read a couple paragraphs from it because I think, I just think it's interesting. And so I'm just going to have it out here Um, and know that this is happening in Borges's head, right? Um, and, And I guess here's an important note. Throughout his life, Borges, despite being almost undoubtedly undoubtedly some kind of mystic is agnostic he doesn't really fall he doesn't really go for his mother's catholicism he doesn't really go some, for some alternative he's very curious about these things his relationship to religion and and his cosmology evolves over time but it's i think it's important to always think of him as a guy who's comfortable not having the answer right he's fine he'd, he'd almost prefer to not really know and sort of live in that liminal space where you can't really settle on anything um but he's also very learned so he can talk about any of these things this is from a defense of the kabbalah if the sun is god's reconciliation with the world the spirit the beginning of sanctification according to athanasius an angel among others uh uh, may best be defined as God's intimacy with us. So he's saying this Holy Spirit may best be defined as God's intimacy with us, his imminence in our breast. Whether or not a mere syntactical formality, what is certain is that the third blind person of the entangled Trinity is the recognized author of the scriptures. Gibbon, in the chapter of his work that deals with Islam, includes a certain general consensus of the publication of the Holy uh, publications of the Holy Spirit, modestly calculated at a hundred and some. But the one which interests me now is Genesis, the subject matter of the Kabbalah, which maybe people who are more uh, theologically adept than me had thought of this before, but I had never really thought of the Holy Spirit as being the author of the scriptures. Uh, I really like that uh, take, I guess. Um, he he yeah. likes playing around with ideas of monism. Um, the Holy Spirit wrote all the books is one version of that. Mm-hmm. He likes to say uh, the, that every man who reads a line of Shakespeare is Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone is the same person in, in a sense. So, yeah, we have the Pierre Mar- uh, Menard, uh, the quote, the Quixote. Uh, short story yeah. which we might talk about well yeah. and th- this idea of of uh the oneness the unity of oneness and plurality is part of the 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 symbolism of the olive mm-hmm. um it's um so the the gematria value of so the olive is the the first letter it's the letter a essentially right. in hebrew um and it's as you know the 
each letter gets a, a numerical value, and this can be used as a way of reading things by translating words into numbers. Um, mm -hmm. Olive has a double gematria value of one and 1,000. You can do either. <laughs> um, this symbolically means one and many, as God is. God is one and, and many, and an extra Borgesian twist here is added together. They are a thousand and one as in the right. thousand and one nights, which is one of Borges's favorite books and uh, tremendous influence on him. So, right. Right. Oh, and he would, he would have at some point he realized that, right. You know, made that connection. And I'm sure that delighted him to no end. Um, let me read just a little bit more about this from the, uh, what was it? The defense of Kabbalah, a defense of the Kabbalah quote, the, the Kabbalists believed, as many Christians now do, in the divinity of that story, that is Genesis, in its deliberate writing by an infinite intelligence. The consequences of such an assumption are many. The careless dispatch of an ordinary text allows for a considerable amount of chance. It communicates a fact. It reports that yesterday's always unusual assault uh, took place on such and such a street, at such and such a corner, at such and such an hour of the morning. A formula which re represents no one, which limits itself to indicating such and such a place about which news was supplied. Right, so this gets fairly—he gets kind of in the weeds a little bit about the implications of all these things. There's a little bit um, I wanted to read. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, uh, da, 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 da. Um, okay, this is a little bit further further down. Let us imagine now this astral intelligence dedicated to manifesting itself not in destinies, or sorry, not in dynasties or annihilations or birds, but in written words. Let us also imagine, according to the pre-Augustinian theory of verbal inspiration, that God dictates word by word what he proposes to say. This premise, which was the one postulated by the Kabbalists, turns the scriptures into an absolute text where the collaboration of chance is calculated at zero. The conception alone of such a document is a great wonder, greater wonder than those who record than those recorded in its pages. A book impervious to contingencies, a mechanism of infinite purposes, of infallible variations, of re revelations lying in wait, of superimpositions of light. How could one not study it to absurdity, to numerical ex excess, as did the Kabbalah? Right. So. You know, this, <laughs> you can see why this guy would write something like Tlan or 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 uh, the Aleph or any of these any of these stories that he's well known for. I mean, he he's definitely he's sort of he he's feeling the mystery of of these things, right? He can hold that book and and realize the implications of it. And for him, it's almost not even it doesn't inspire religious faith in any way. He's fascinated by the 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 intellectual, theological, cosmological labyrinth of it, the infinite regression of it, right? The mirrors pointing at mirrors of it. Really, really pretty interesting. Um, okay. Thank you for allowing me that diversion, Kevin. I see you nodding. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, it is a labyrinth of mirrors yes, here yeah. as we go through Borges. <laughs> yeah. I'm letting it wash over me. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, yeah. I hope the audience is as well. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna get we're gonna get into some some more salacious bits here in a second because he's about to meet Nora Lang. And Nora Lang of the many Beatrices of his life, Nora Lang is the Beatrice above Beatrice. Um uh L-A-N-G-E? Uh, L-A-N-G-E, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so um, let me see. She, she, she's German? Uh, well, it's, she's... It's a German I'm gonna, surname. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to get to it here. Okay, so 
Um, Nora is she's Norwegian. She's, oh, her her father right. was Norwegian. All right, Nora was the daughter of a Norwegian man and a uh, Argentine-born woman of Irish stock. Um, okay, so let me read you this description of her <clears throat> real quick. Um, <clears throat> a good part of Nora's attraction lay in the exoticism of her family background. Her father, Gunnar Lang, was a Norme Norwegian, while her mother, Berta Erfjord, through, though Argentine born was herself the daughter of a Norwegian and an Irish woman. The Langs were to have five daughters and a son, and it was to accommodate this growing brood that Gunnar, Gunnar Lang had um, bought a large detached house with an ample garden uh, on the corners of Cali Tronador and Pampa in a barrio of the town uh, of Belgrano. Um, this is basically now it's within Buenos Aires. Nora, the fourth child, was born on October 23rd, 1906, and spent the first five years of her life in this house. But then her father, a civil engineer, was appointed to a post near the town of uh, General Alviar in the province of Mendoza at the foot of the Andes. Um, now, we get a little bit more description of her. Um, she was an intelligent, well-educated, uh, oh, that's her mother, sorry. Back to Nora. A particular, particularly striking attribute of Nora Lang's was her mane of red hair, an exotic attribute in a Latin country and one associated in the Hispanic world with devilment and mischief. He's the got a of, type. Yeah, He's he got does. A type. He definitely yeah. does. We still it's, haven't encountered a foot guy yet on the pod. We've we done haven't. We're gonna really have to do well. Pushkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Tarantino oh, okay. or something. Okay, all right. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's not do Tarantino for a while. And yeah, we do have yeah. a rule. They have to be That's dead true. for a year and a day before That's we true. cover them. So in sure. he might not live us. Yeah. yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, that guy. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, this sign, the red hair, the sign of a fiery temperament was borne out by her spirited behavior. Right? She grew up to uh, she grew up the tomboy of the family, notorious for her, her escapades and practical jokes. Her favorite turn in early adolescence was to put on a poncho and a broad brimmed hat and climb up on the roof from where she shocked the neighbors by shouting out a great incomprehensible stream of words in various languages, punctuating it with insults and shrieks of laughter. Okay. Um, eventually, you know, she gets older, obviously. Yeah, has, a good was, time. We do a little yeah. shrieking. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Yeah. It's a good a little time. casual yeah. shrieking. She's she's the, I mean, the good thing about her is she's shrieking for fun. Right. right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> when you're not when it's not fun. Uh, yeah. Um, Borges was, of course, extraordinarily susceptible to the romantic uh, aura of men of action, like Nora's father, and Nora's attachment to the memory of her father undoubtedly added to her mystique. In addition, the Langs were related to the distinguished Norwegian novelist and playwright Alexander Keeland, and this meant that Nora, like Borges, could boast writers as well as heroes among her forebears. To cap it all, the two fam families were actually related by marriage, Nora's aunt being the wife of Borges' uncle Frank a connection that made Nora and uh, Georgie uh, cousins in the Hispanic tradition. Um, Nora's, uh, Nora's was a complex allure. Her red hair spoke of her passion, but her pale Scandinavian looks called in mind the purity of an angel, and it was this tantalizing blend of innocence and fire that she captured in dreamy poems charged with erotic anticipation. Her poems, moreover, depicted uh, a passage dom, not dissimilar to Borges's, a favorite topic being the sun setting over the barrios bordering the pampas. Small wonder that this sparkling, iridescent creature, poet, angel, temptress, and potential soulmate, soulmate all in one, should have captivated the young Borges with his, with his all-too-small experience of the female sex. So, meets this woman, falls madly in love with her, um, 
gives up Concepcion. She's out of the picture. That first, that second woman he fell in love with, the first Argentine woman that he fell in love with. Um, and Nora, Borges is not the only person obsessed with Nora. Nora becomes very rapidly the angel of the avant-garde scene. There are other people in the scene who write poetry about her, right? Um, and it's tricky. And she's young. She's seven years younger than 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 Georgie. When they meet, she's 20, I want to say. She might even be younger than that. She might have been 18. Um, and the thing with Nora and Borges is it never really works out. He pines after her. They are. She gets friend zoned by her. She makes moves like she's getting closer to him. He tries to steal his nerve to kind of do say things, and it's all futile, basically. Um, she never really becomes his Beatrice, except in his mind. Um, and you know, though she is sort of his muse from time to time, and he finds inspiration in the unrequitedness of it. Right? This, the you're, so you're saying there's a chance. That there's a lot of energy in that. You're, so you're saying there's a chance, right? Georgie is down bad. He is down bad. Yeah. Mm. Um, it takes years before this affair. It takes years before he admits that there is no chance. I think six years altogether from the time they meet and they spend a lot of time together. He's going over to her house, hanging out. Um, he's got his own Tertulia, which is basically the Lang sisters and a couple other people. Um, and when they break up, he stops writing poetry for a while, um, uh, which is interesting because it actually foments his next evolution in, in writing to become the bore as we know. But we're going to we're going to sort of get there. Um, let's see. So, uh, yeah, um, thinking about you got I don't know if I want to talk about politics. There's so much politics we could talk about. It's tricky for me to know how much of it's worth actually talking about. One thing to notice here, it's in as an American looking at Argentine politics, it's confusing often. Um you've got uh you know, you've got like right-wing like how how would you put it? Conservative communists You've got, you know, sort of like nationalists, competing factions of nationalists who think the country is something other than the other group does. It's very, and I'm sure if you, you grew up in that world, it makes more sense. But for me, it was a labyrinth trying to understand it, honestly. Right, <laughs> it, it, right. Going from knowing nothing to like, I need to know a little bit of what's going on. It's like, I it have no idea. It seems like you would what. need to understand what a junta is in order to understand <laughs> their politics and their history. Yeah, yeah junt juntas are quite important for sure. Right. One interesting Cruz. thing about, you know, um, yeah. the world, uh, that kind of world is uh that distinguishes our own is that liberalism is like understood as like a distinct faction rather than just being kind of the ambient background of politics as it is in our world. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yes. for sure. Yeah. And, and, and Borges at this time, he would be in this sort of mid twenties period. He would be what we, what they would refer to as a radical and really what a radical is, is what we would now consider just a normal liberal person basically that's what that's what it would be he's not uh i don't think any any particular political opinion he had was particularly radical by our our definition um mostly just kind of a urbane 
uh, well-educated, right? Wants the country wants the economy to be good doesn't really trust communism but kind of is sympathetic to some of the some of the some of the critiques within communism um and uh you know support for workers support for you know the various kind of progressive social programs so that's kind of his generally his 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 territory you're telling um, me we don't want to throw the children down the mine after they right. die from a hard days weeks no. months work no no, no. The, no. these yeah. liberals these crazy liberals want the children to unionize they want yeah. the children to work six days a week not eight right. <laughs> yes right yeah, yeah. Mm. um now, by the mid to late 20s, he's finding himself a little bit stuck creatively. We're going to get to the things that get him out of this, but I want to kind of position him uh, where he's at. And I think what will tell what will kind of indicate where he was in 1926 is this important essay for understanding his evolution called A Profession of Literary Faith. Um, and I think I'm going to just read... Um, yeah, let me just read this little bit from, from, uh, a postulation, uh, sorry, a profession of literary faith. Quote, my postulate is that all literature in the end is autobiographical. Everything is poetic that confesses, that gives us a glimpse of a, dis a destiny in lyric poetry. This destiny usually remains immutable, alert, but always sketched by symbols that are congenial to its idiosyncrasy and allow us to follow its trace. There is no other meaning in Gangora's tresses of hair, sapphires and shattered glass, or uh, Almaforte's marshes and packs of dogs. The same is true for novels. The character who matters in the didactic novel um, El Criticon, I don't know that book, <laughs> is neither Critio nor Adrino nor the allegorical chorus that encircles them. It is Friar Gratian with his Lilliputian uh, genius, his solemn pun puns, his bows to archbishops and grandees, his religion of distrust, his sense of excess erudition, his honeyed veneer and deep-rooted bile. Similarly, we politely suspend our disbelief of Shakespeare's age-old stories infused with his magnificent verbiage. The one in whom we truly believe is not Lear's daughter, but the dramatist himself. Let it be clear that I do not pretend to invalidate the vitality of the theater and novels. I am asserting what Macedonio Fernandez has already said, that our craving for souls, destinies, idiosyncrasies knows full well what it covets, that if fantasy lives do not suffice, the author delves amorously into his own. The same applies to metaphors. Any metaphor, as beguiling as it may be, is a possible experience, and the difficulty lies not in its invention, a simple thing attained by the mere shuffling of fancy, word, of fancy words, but in achieving it in a way that astonishes the reader. Okay, a little further down the page. <clears throat> the variety of words is another error. All the academic, uh, academicians, academic, academicians? Okay. Recommended, I think, mistakenly. I nailed it. Words... First try. Got Boom. it. Boom. Boom. <laughs> I, I believe words must be conquered, lived, and that the apparent publicity they receive from the dictionary is a falsehood. Nobody should dare to write the word outskirts without having spent hours pacing their high sidewalks, without having desired and suffered as if they were a lover, without having felt their walls, their lots, their moons just, just around the corner from a general store like a cornucopia. I have now conquered my poverty, recognizing among thousands the nine or ten words that get along with my soul. I have already written more than one book in order to write, perhaps, one page. 
That page justifies me. That summarizes my destiny, the one that perhaps only the attending angels will hear when Judgment Day arrives. Simply, the page that, at dusk, upon the resolved truth of day's end, at sunset, with its dark and fresh breeze and girls glowing in the streets, I would dare to read to a friend. So, um, again, we're getting this like intense passion about literature in this case, about the word, the individual word in this case, the individual page. Um, but he's also talking a lot about this confessionalism aspect, uh, all writing his autobiography. Later on in his life, when he's giving lectures at Harvard, he basically says, oh, when I write a story, I just try to forget myself entirely. So I don't know how true the second statement was necessarily, and I don't know how earnest this statement is or if this is him um, idealizing, trying to reach for this kind of thing. But but all this stuff is sort of in there. Because I think a lot of his stories, if you don't know anything about Borges, don't seem autobiographical at all, other than he puts himself, his, his name in there. They don't feel like they're confessing to anything. But there are, excuse me, there are correspondences that knowing his biography, you can start to see. Well, it's really interesting. Um, you know, another early essay of his is called The Nothingness of Personality, in which he tries to disprove the idea that there's any kind of coherent whole self. Yeah. And then, you know, around the same time, he's also saying that, well, all uh, literature is autobiographical, and it makes you wonder the autobiography of what if there is right. no self. And that that's kind of, this is the paradox of Borges. And if you kind of try to put those two together, you get this you know, thing where all the the writing, all of Borges is about Borges, but Borges isn't anything other than all of this writing. Mm -hmm. um, I want to read a short relevant quote um, that he, uh, this is, he wrote this in the afterword to a collection called The Maker, which is kind of a, a cool collection because it, it, it's pieces that are very, very short, sometimes a paragraph. But anyways, he wrote, a man sets out to draw the world. As the years go by, he peoples a space with images of provinces, kingdoms, mountains, bays, ships, islands, fishes, rooms, instruments, stars, horses, and individuals. A short time before he dies, he discovers that the patient labyrinth of lines traces the lineaments of his own face. So the whole time it's like he's writing an autobiography or, or he's 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 producing himself sort of through his writing and what is the image of his own face is what he has created in the process mm. of of doing that you know what i mean Mhm mm yeah 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 there's something that like um talking about like autobiographical like uh, to him writing the autobiographical does not mean to write the events that happened to you it is something more like creating this thing that ends up being your face. Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful passage. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, because there is very little, you know, all this stuff about Nora and stuff. None of this ends up. Some of it shows up in the poetry a little bit, um, and some of it does show up in the fiction, sort of traces of it. But you know, you you wouldn't read it and necessarily go, "Oh, Borges had quite a time with this Nora Lang woman, right?" That, that's it's not a Nausgaard or whatever, right? Um, uh, okay, so let's see. So Nora Lang, um, kind of tricky. Okay, we got to talk about how he loses Nora. Um, there's event. There's an event which encapsulates i felt this is maybe the worst i've felt for borges in the entire is it story. fair to say here 
Borges has no chill. He's got no chill. No chill. He's, no chill. He's got no. He's got no game either. Like no okay. swagger whatsoever. And you can get by if you have game, but no chill. You can <laughs> yeah. get by if you have chill, but no game. But if yeah, you have no he, game and no chill, I mean, what you're you in do? serious trouble. <laughs> right? You better hit the gym. You got to yeah. do two a days then. Yeah. <laughs> you're not even gonna have time to date. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem is you don't even need that much. You mm. just need some. At a particular moment, right? A little bit of chill. Yeah, and Borges basically never has any of it. Mm. Um, Okay, so 1926, Argentina. uh, uh, At this time, Nora seems to like him. There is a drunken party to celebrate the relaunch of this journal called Martin Fierro. Um, Martin Fierro is an important name to understand in Argentine cultural and and just general um, uh, history. It's like it's a gaucho novel. And it's constantly reinterpreted um, throughout, even till now, probably. Um, Borges would rewrite the ending of of Martin Fierro in a story called The End. Um, and it's constantly being it's constantly being like leveraged by different political parties and like how you interpret it define it at certain points, how you interpret the story Martin Fierro determines like what side of the political fence you're on and, and specific issues. It's crit- it's a it's a, a critical I don't even think we necessarily have an equivalent to this book in America. And maybe we do, and I just don't see it. But um, it's yeah, it's it's a, it, it's it's almost like an olive of Argentina. Like you look into it, and depending on what you see, that's what you think Argentina should be, right? Um, in our country, we're always debating about what the great American novel actually is. Yeah, in Argentina, that's not a question. It's Martin Fierro. Very well put. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 the the liberals and the conservatives would agree right, right. They, they wouldn't disagree they wouldn't disagree about, they would but they would interpret the book differently slightly yeah um uh okay so uh there so this journal gets relaunched borges is in, is, invo- is involved in that um and he's kind of in the scene right he's again he's he sort of started the buenos aires uh avant-garde movement um in a way or at least was at there at its birth um and then on November 6, 1926, Nora, who primarily people knew he and uh, Borges and Nora were kind of together. She was a bit on the scene. But this is the first time um, where they go to something together, like kind of as a couple. And um, they go to this luncheon party at the Boating Lake in Palermo Park. Um it's a party that's held in honor of a new uh, gaucho novel that's come out called Don Segundo Sombra. Um, and uh, after the party, Nora's heart will belong to another man. And I'm going to read a little bit about that. It Nora, the, yeah, dance with the one who brung you. Yeah, for real. Oh. <laughs> At the time of the party in honor of Ricardo Geraldus, that's this party I'm talking about, Nora Lang was known as a published poet and a literary protege of Borges, but her contact with other members of the new generation outside Borges own, Borges's own circle had been very limited. Um, uh, moving down, uh, Borges introduced Nora to uh, uh, Oliverio uh, Garando, and she was later to find herself Nick sitting next to her new acquaintance over lunch. What struck her about Garando was his voice. It was dark and resonant, resonant like mahogany or something underground, as she would say. At one point, she knocked over a bottle of wine, whereupon Garando leaned over toward her and said, blood will flow between us. 
It was a remark that could scarcely have been better judged to impress a 20-year-old girl like Nora, who was so susceptible to the advent of a man to whom she felt destined to give herself. After lunch, they danced together, and then Garando took her home. Nora had fallen head over heels for this stranger. Oliveira was vital, passionate. I was in love with him from that day on. So, yeah. So Got mogged. Boris loses. Yeah. Ouch. Holy. And here's part, here's part of the other problem. Boris didn't like Garando before all of this. Like before this, he was already like despised him. They'd argued over like the direction of the avant garde, right? They would have written different manifestos if they were writing manifestos. Brutal. Um, there was sort of class resentment because Garando was from the actual ruling class. Boris was from an old family of the of the upper middle class, but they didn't have any influence. But Grando is from like a ruling class. It's very similar family. to our dynamic, Brad. Yeah, that's right. Sure. I don't know, you know which one's which. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <it> would be <laughs> um, our our descendants will be podcast nobility. Oh, oh I <laughs> right. see. I see yeah, what you're think saying. Think about okay. this. <laughs> yes, it's very good. Aldous as well. Yeah, yes. that's right. Yes, that's yeah. right. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> podcast nobility. Um, uh, okay, so after Garando, the House of Assyrian will be known yeah. about throughout the yeah. land. As <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's right. Uh, um, oh, I just have to think about that for a second. Okay, Garando steals Borges's girl. <laughs> um, and again, like we said, this goes on for it's years before Borges is over this. Part of the reason he has a difficult getting difficulty getting over this is because um, while Garando sort of steals her, Garando never commits to her. Garando doesn't just like marry her and that's it. It's it's like, oh, he's off in Europe. And he's like, well, I don't know if I can marry you. And like, he's wishy-washy. So she's unstable, right? Catnip. And, this guy, yeah. is he? this is the PUA. He's doing it. Oh, he's yeah, got yeah. all the game. Yeah. yeah. Game yeah. and chill. Game and chill. chill. He has both of these things for sure. And he become he would become notorious later for having crazy parties too. And but every time, every time sort of Garando isn't on the scene, Borges tries to slip in there. But Borges, if you're gonna try and slip in there, you gotta have some game. Borges has no game. So he, you know, his kind of thing would be to just like come up and just be like, Nora, I'll die if you're not with me. You know, like that sort of thing, right? And it's just not, it just doesn't work usually. Um, okay. Uh, you know, but, but there's, you know, she's young and she, she, it's just tricky to say she probably liked the attention somewhat. She was in the same scene and it's not that big of a scene, right? Um, how many, how many avant-garde poets are there in Buenos Aires? It's in the order of dozens, right? It's not like it's that big of a world. Um, One can hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, now here is in, in, here is the culminating mortification of this entire process. Okay. Nora at one point goes to Oslo to stay with some family there. And Borges, this is like when she leaves, Borges is under the impression that when she comes back, they might be together. But he's writing her letters and she's not answering them. So he's, you know, forlorn and all of this. After she comes back, she writes a novel that is very thinly fictionalized version of basically her life. Um, it had an other title, but it would eventually, when it came out, it would basically be called 45 Days and 30 Sailors. And it's about her time on the boat to Oslo. Um, 
very sexually suggestive, very suggestive of like sexual exploration, never really quite stating it. Right. Reading my search history. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 45 days and 30 sailors. 30 sailors. Yeah. See. yeah. At the release party, all the homies in the avant-garde scene, including Pablo Neruda, who's sort of lurking around and who she may have had a romantic thing with, they all dressed up as sailors and she dressed up as a mermaid at the release party. Right. Um, and then Borges did not go to the party, but he wrote a review of the novel in which he is a character and is sort of shunted off to the side. Um, and it's sort of like, could he, this is the thing, he's, he's not like, he just puts himself in the position to suffer. He's a simp. It. Yeah, he's right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just like, dude, you just, just never simp. No, you it. gotta, you know, give it some time try try to get in there and if at some point all signs point to no you just you just move on man you, yeah two a days at the gym yeah that's yeah. what you do mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so anyway um yeah uh he really never and, and here's the thing he has other romances um but he never really gets over nora um he refers to her in a story he publishes in 1970 he refers to it makes a clear reference to nora um and let me read a quick thing from the bio um this is years 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 and years later remember he she basically broke up with him in 1926 um this thing hold on let me get to it um <clears throat> in the duel which is written in the 1960s Borges went as far as he could toward unmasking the autobiographical origins of the theme without actually giving away the true identities of the rivals. The story describes the secret en uh, enmity between Clara Glencairn, an abstract painter, and Marta Pizarro, who, uh, who started painting portra portraits of Argentine heroes and then went on to specialize in old houses of Buenos Aires. Borges was, of course, alluding to his old feud with Garando, but disguised it by making the rivals women and their medium painting instead of poetry. Like Nora Lang, Glaric Glencarn was haughty and tall and had fiery red hair. Her first exhibition was held at an avant-garde gallery um, on Cala Supcha, uh, sorry, Cala Supacha, which was the street where Garando lived. Marta Pizarro's nativist paintings called the mind uh, Borges's uh, Criolissimo of the 1920s. On the surface, the relations were amicable, even generous. When Clara won a prize, Marta organized a dinner in her honor, and in her speech of thanks, Clara observed that there existed no opposition between tradition and innovation, between order and adventure. So there's more to that story, but the point is 40 years go by and he's still processing this rivalry, this breakup and all of that, right? Um, he got to let it go, man. Yeah, he goes so let it go. far. He goes so far as in, uh, to in 1940, he tries to basically get with Nora's sister, Haiti. Uh, uh, so, yeah. Believes he's well, in love with her, etc. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Okay. There it is. Yeah. There it is. That's the, the echo of the earlier moments. The idealization. Mm -hmm. Not not good. No, not good. no. Um, okay, so at the time of his peak with this relationship, so so this is the thing. Now, the on the other side of when he was the way to put this. He has this rejection by Nora. It's devastating. He stops writing poetry. Once he's able to kind of get through to the other side, he never gets over it. But once the wounds heal to some degree is when we get the Borges that everybody has read, right? That's when it all starts. So kind of curious, like how he gets there, right? Um, I think, you know, 
I think maybe, well, looking at time here, maybe we can talk about, I know, Aldous, you wanted to talk about on exactitude and science. And I think that's a good example of the Borges. We, the, 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 if you don't know much about Borges, you know these couple of stories we've talked about on exactitude and science is almost the pure crystal of that. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of a later story. It, it mm -hmm. comes from that collection I mentioned called The Maker, um, where they're all like really short like this. Um, but I, yeah, it's short enough that I can read the entirety of it, which is really yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, so here we go. In that, I'm um, sorry, start again, back up. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, swing and a miss. In that empire, the art of cartography attained such perfection that the map of a single province occupied the entirety of a city and the map of the empire, the entirety of a province. In time, those unconscionable maps no longer satisfied, and the cartographer's guilds struck a map of the empire whose size was that of the empire, and which coincided point for point with it. The following generations, who were not so fond of the study of cartography as their forebears had been, saw that the vast map was useless, and not without some pitilessness was it that they delivered it up to the inclemencies of sun and winters. In the deserts of the West, still today, there are tattered ruins of that map inhabited by animals and beggars. In all that land, there is no other relic of the disciplines of geography. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's a full story. I love that. I, I think of Borges as um, not a minimalist, but a miniaturist. Mm. Um, you can see that his sentences are not... Um, like terse or minimal in the way that a, you know a Hemingway is there they could be rather prolix in fact mm -hmm. um, but the scale of his of his form is really small um, such that he's trying to he's trying to convey big ideas he's trying to fit infinity in a nutshell you know in fact that's the idea of the olive is that everything is in this tiny little point mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in space and he's trying to He's trying to uh, execute that formally um, in a way where, you know, he if he can convey, um, in fact, this is what he says famously in the introduction to Ficciones, that um, why spend time writing these vast um, labyrinthine novels when one could suggest them, when one can assume that they exist and then just write a synopsis of them, which is what right. he does right. um, in several stories there. But yeah, yeah this... This has this story has like a there's something of a fable like or you know almost fairy tale like quality to it um, mm -hmm. and it, yeah like like you said it's been very influential yeah it feels and it feels allegorical it, it but it does the thing that that my favorite of Kafka's writing does where it feels allegorical. I, I still can't quite articulate this, I don't think. It feels allegorical, but the allegory never quite lands. It's 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 like yeah. so what are what are the maps? You keep trying to I keep trying to think, well, okay, does he mean that that's history? But then for some reason, like that allegory, that analogy doesn't quite work. And and so what you're left with is just this sort of like I feel like I can't. I still don't understand on exactitude and science exactly. I just know how it makes me feel. And it's yeah. very interesting for a story that has no characters to instill in me such a profound and idiosyncratic emotional state. Yeah. And that's the thing that's almost to me is sort of miraculous about some of Borges's work is it, it makes me feel like nothing else I've ever read feels. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I do think that um, Kafka is probably a good um, precursor here. If he got that kind of uh, heterogeneous list um, from Whitman, he probably got this more like fragmentary or mm -hmm. or minimal approach um, from Kafka. And the and the fable quality too. I mean, a lot yeah. of Kafka's work has a very fable fable like yeah. aspect to it. Um, yeah, Kafka Not the novels, but would do things like rewriting the myth of Prometheus and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. Now this uh, this is an, a a place where Borges starts to um, influence postmodern philosophy and not just fiction. Um, if you've ever read the philosopher Jean Baudrillard, he begins Simulacra and Simulation, probably his most famous book, by discussing this story, um, only to reject it because he says that this is precisely what the what his idea of the uh, simulacra isn't, which is this you know, mm -hmm. copy that becomes so detailed that it actually just reproduces reality entirely. Mm -hmm. um, he says that the relations have become reversed. It's actually the empire. In our world, um, mm -hmm. Baudrillard says it's the empire that's decaying in the desert, not the map. Right. Um, the empire is decaying and we're living in the map. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, or there just is no, you know, there's no map. There's no territory. It's all, right. it's all simulated. Um, but anyway, with that, guys, I gotta, I gotta uh, okay. head out. Um, thanks for having me on. I have uh, to put the little Asterion to bed now. Of so, course, uh, of course, it was a real honor, man. We really appreciate you. Yeah. Okay. Thank have you. A thanks, future guys. podcast royalty going <laughs> right. to bed right now. Thank <laughs> you, right. Aldis. All right. Yeah, good, appreciate good it. Night, we'll guys. talk to you soon, man. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Take care. Good guy. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Couldn't it? Yeah. And he brought the heat on some of this stuff that I don't, I don't quite, quite get my head around. So, okay. So we're, we're, we're making progress here, Kevin. Um, you're doing a fabulous job, Brad. And I just, thanks. I just have to say for everybody listening, we got a couple of juicy things coming for you on the after dark, patreon.com slash mm -hmm. art of dark pod. Yeah. We did a core episode on Maryland yesterday. There's an after dark for that. We're doing the core episode right now. There's going to be an after dark for this, Brad. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about the Nobel Prize. We're going to talk about why he didn't win the Nobel Prize. Yeah. And, and then we're going to talk about this rather obscure language in yeah. Switzerland, just yeah. for kicks. I love it. I love it. Part of our explanation for why he didn't win the Nobel Prize, we're also going to explain what a junta is. Oh, it's involved. Good. It's important. Yeah. It's necessary. You can't explain why. You can't explain why Borges lost the Nobel Prize without knowing what a junta is. Scada junta, scada junta, scada junta, scada junta, scada junta. Gotta listen to the Maryland episode for yeah, that. To catch, we catch got that joke. lots of through lines and jokes <laughs> and different things happening here on Art of Darkness. We That's do right. love covering these individual subjects, but we like to add a little bit of our. Our, a little spice. Yeah, little sauce. for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay. So what we're sort of talking about when I, the thing I said, Nora, he loses Nora. He stops writing poetry. And yet when he does manage to get himself somehow to the other side of this Nora heartbreak, he basically, he becomes the Borges we know. And how does this happen? I was very interested in this transformation. You go from a guy who's clearly brilliant um, but writing poetry that is the poetry itself isn't formally innovative, particularly. Um, and the essays, though, some of them are quite interesting. A lot of them are fairly stock book reviews. Um, how does he get to become this other guy? Um, and there's a bunch of factors. There's one little thing that I want to read from the biography. Um, the true, 
quote, the true legacy of his father uh, was an intellectual anarchism that drove him to assert the uniqueness of the self against any force that threatened to constrain or negate it. It was this will to freedom that made Borges so combative and polemical throughout his career and so ambitious, for there was nothing he liked better, with the exception of writing and reading, than to be the leader of a literary faction involved in some embattled cause or other. So we have to think about him like that, too. Can't stand up to his mother, but he will stand down on the entire avant-garde literary movement. He's the kind of guy that loves a pamphlet. Have he does you love seen pamphlets. the pamphlet. Yes, mm. yes, yes. No, yes. not last week's pamphlet. The, yesterday's that manifesto is completely outdated. Yeah, I read another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you get the memo? Yeah, right, right. Um, another thing is uh, another factor that's in the evolution of Borges is a little bit more political. Um, this is his political involvement with this guy uh, Irigoyen um, in 1928. Um, Hippolito Irigoyen, who'd first been president in 1916 under the first secret and mandatory vote for men, um, thus was the first democratically elected president of Argentina, if you think that's possible without the vote of women, right? Um, on a, he won on a platform of liberal nationalism in the Radical Civic Union Party. Radical Civic Union Party, this was basically the party that Borges was a part of. Um, uh, uh, Irigoyen had convinced, uh, he was convinced that the country had to manage its own currency, it had to manage its own transportation, energy, petroleum, etc. He tried to limit the ability of foreign businesses to operate in Argentina, and he generally oversaw the beginnings of an impressive economic expansion. Um, he was ousted in 1922, but now in 1928, he was being ushered back in, and Borges was a huge booster. So Borges was a publicly recognized figure. You might know him more for his, at that time, for his Irigoyen boostering than you did for his his writing, right? Um, here's another, here's kind of another thing. Um, we see Borges starting to define coming up with the, the literature that would define magic realism or magical realism. Now, magical realism has become something that now is almost uh, parodic or a little bit looked down upon. Um, and that's just like any sort of genre innovation. It it sort of starts to crumble and fall apart after a while without re- rejuvenating. Um mm you know, it becomes, it becomes a little farcical after a while, right? It becomes a uh, parody of itself. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but when sort of at the beginning of this, where, uh, uh, Borges's, um, first collection of short stories has been called the first book of magical realism. Um, it's a little bit different, right? It's, it's, you're the first one who did something. It's, it's, uh, it's different. The, the first disco album was a whole different thing than the last disco album, right? <laughs> um, but here's <laughs> the last okay. disco disco album is Random Access Memories by uh, okay. uh, Daft Punk, and that's but that's okay. there. That's why they're the the greatest of all. Fair, that's why that's enough. okay. Fair okay, enough. good. All yeah. right, let's, not, really let's thought, not argue about. I, I hadn't really thought through this pod. analogy. No, Kevin. that's yeah. okay. But you're right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that last sad disco eight track in 1985. Yeah, whatever. or it's like yeah, we don't make disco like, anymore, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. Um now here's here I think you can see the evolution of his thought from 1929 to 1936. This is a key period um 
in his in his overall evolution it's post nor lang right um just in the titles of his essays during this time his the prominent essays that show up in the collected nonfiction. um and i'm just going to read the titles of them because i literally think you can get this you can track what i'm trying to explain um one essay is called the perpetual race of achilles and the tortoise there's an essay called the duration of hell uh the superstitious ethics of the reader uh, the postulation of reality, a defense of Basilides the false, the Homeric versions, which I think we alluded to, narrative of art and magic, a defense of the Kabbalah, which we talked about, the art of verbal abuse, the translators of the Thousand and One Nights, the labyrinths of the detective story and Chesterton. That one's really good. Uh, the doctrine of cycles. And finally, one called a history of eternity. Now, a history of eternity that is, if you wanted to take, if you wanted to have like a random generation of Borges uh, stories, history of eternity is a perfect little keyword, right? Um, yeah, it's, it has that trick to it um, that, that, he, that would be the kind of thing that he would love. Um, I really like, uh, you know, all these essays are probably worth reading to some extent. I didn't read all of them. Um, some of them I had read in the past. Some of them I reread. A couple others were new. Um, one of particular interest is narrative art and magic. Um, he basically lays out this sort of, it comes off in a very like mild mannered kind of way, but he's basically telling you how to get magic into your novel. Um, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, he summarizes it. He's, he says the way that you have to think about it to make your novel magical, right? Is that every lucid and de determined detail is a prophecy. So, the things that happen in the book are actually prophetic of what's going to happen later. That's the perspective that you sort of need to maintain. Um, just pretty interesting. Uh, he looks at a handful of books in this essay, including Poe, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's narrative of Arthur Gordon Pyme, um, which I'm, I'm going to read that book this year. I've determined I keep, it keeps coming up. Um, Borges also was a, uh, an avid re as an avid reader of detective novels and adventure novels and fantasy. Um, he's trying to sort of, after reading all this, he's sort of trying to come up with the rules, maybe for himself as much as for an audience. Um, there's a little bit I want to read here on this. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, and I think you'll, I think you'll dig that this Kevin, um, Quote, later that year, he wrote The Art of Narrative and Magic. This is the essay we were just talking about, in which he questioned the premises of literary realism. His basic contention was that fiction did not depend on the illusion of reality. What mattered ultimately was an author's ability to generate, quote, poetic faith in his reader. Naturalistic description, he argued, was not especially effective in making a reader suspend disbelief. A writer could employ techniques of indirection and suggestion to render fabulous creatures like centaurs and sirens aesthetically convincing. The fundamental problem of the novel, uh, Borges asserted, was causality. The realist novel... Uh, the quote slow moving novel of character presented a con uh, concatenation of motives purporting to be no different from that which exists in the real world but in novels of adventure and short stories in the infinite spectacular novel which is hollywood another order reigned the primitive clarity of magic 
Indeed, magic, he contended, offered the best analogy for the way in which narrative actually worked. Magical causality operated by virtue of a general law of sympathy that postulated an inevitable link between distant objects, a necessary connection not just between a corpse and a bullet, but between a corpse and a mutilated wax effigy, or a broken mirror, or spilled salt, or 13 people at a dinner table. Narrative fashioned a comparable teleology of words and episodes, a precise interplay of observations, echoes, and affinities. Fiction did not hold up a mirror to reality. Rather, it constituted an autonomous sphere of corroborations, omens, and monuments that was best illustrated by, by Joyce's Ulysses. So, he is... His approach, his philosophy on all this stuff, it went from earlier on. It's all about Whitman-esque transcendence and, and uh, you know, confession and autobiography to, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's actually magic. I mean, cool. if I'm going to boil it down as simple as possible. I will co-sign. Yes. As yeah. a writer uh, for a number of years. That yeah. tracks the clearest with my mm-hmm. experience of, of what it is, as a, both as a practice and then also as a, re- a realization. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, agreed. No, I, when he said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with Borges here. Um, hmm. uh, another influence, another thing going on here that's that's propelling him to the Borges we know um, is his fascination with the with crime and the underworld. Right, fascinated with knife fighters, fascinated with the the gaucho myth. Um, in the 1930s, he becomes friends with this guy Don, uh, Don Nicholas Peri. Uh, Perides, who is a former godfather of the Palermo underworld and a legendary knife fighter. One of Borges's first stories was called Men of the uh, Outskirts, was basically about this guy, was about this ne- legendary knife fighter. Um, it's about brothels and duels and all of this. Um, uh, this, you know, generally, it, it's just important to remember that this world always appeals to him. And while we talk about the Library of Babel and Tlan, there's also a bunch of stories that are set in the criminal underworld, too, that are almost noirs, but weird. They always have a weird, there's always an, there's always a, an aura, a, a strange alienating aura to them that, you know, doesn't maybe exist in something like Raymond Chandler or whatever. Um, um, oh, at one point, he sees a murder. Uh, this is very inspirational to him, actually. At one point, he sees a murder. He's in, uh, I think it's Paraguay, visiting somebody. And they're in a bar. And some gaucho comes up and just kills a guy right next to Borges. And then just walks away. And then the next day, they're in the bar again. And the same guy is in there. And he was just fascinated by the ability, sort of conscience and physically all of it the ability for this guy to just come in murder somebody in full view of everyone walk out and then the next day come back he that was just mind-blowing to him that is Um, remarkable yeah that is something to think about yeah borges doesn't seem like a man of action he's he's not he's yeah he's almost pure thought right 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 and i think you know i think um, I think, you know, it, it, you can always understand, though, like a person who is completely cerebral, there's always going to be a little bit of appeal to that man of action thing. Right. And I think for a lot of men of action, there's probably a little bit of appeal of the intellectual, too. Right. Like, oh, you know, if I had read more, you know, you're always there's always a little bit of a grass is always greener. And he certainly always wished he was more of a man of action. Um, uh, you know, OK, so. There's another thing that kind of goes on here too. Um, 
1938, his father dies. And here's another thing too. From 1926, basically, until um, the uh, the publication of Ficciones, um, his reputation, he was pretty well known in literary avant-garde. He's publishing a lot of stuff in magazines and, and journals that are, have decent distribution. But he's his star as a literary figure is sort of falling into like, nobody's reading his original work. They're reading his essays. They're reading his reviews. They're reading his political statements. And so his reputation is people still know who he is, but you don't think of him even as a poet anymore. If you're in Buenos Aires, he's, he's a public intellectual kind of guy, right? Um, which is just interesting. So everybody knows him, but he still hasn't done the thing that he's going to be, you know, most well known for 1938. His father dies his father had been de- uh, blind for years at this point. Um, surgeries hadn't worked, etc. He was 64 years old and he'd become entirely dependent on Borges' mother. Um, now that he was gone, um, his mother had uh, more bandwidth to sort of put herself into Borges' life, right? Which is not necessarily a good thing. Um, soon, um, Borges is going blind himself slowly, starting in 1928. Soon he'd be entirely dependent on her um, for everything. Uh, she was his assistant, right? And we'll get a little bit more into that. Um, so let's talk about his eyes briefly. Um, he'd always had bad eyes, myopia. Um, March twenty, uh, March of 1928, he had the first of eight different surgeries that he would endure, most of them on his cataracts, before going effectively blind in 1953 at the age of 54 years old. He'd lived oh, that is 30 some years after that. That's tragic. I didn't, I didn't know that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can tell in photos of him as an older man, like he's clearly not looking at the camera or knowing where a camera is or anything and it, it's interesting there's there's he he could see there was a, i think the color yellow he managed to keep the color yellow but mostly it was just vague very vague shapes um and there's a story when he's older of um he wanted to go to he wanted to go to the ocean um near in england someplace i don't remember exactly where he wanted to go out to see the ocean and he wanted to have a moment alone with the ocean which is a a, a po- very poetic moment right you know yeah, what's fun about wanting to go to the ocean <laughs> when you're in england is if you just walk in any direction you'll get eventually there. you end up there <laughs> that's, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. that's right that's right that's right uh, <laughs> so he could have just done he didn't need anybody to take him um, it's only an island if you look at it from the water right <laughs> <laughs> the ubiquitous jaws line i think that's the line anyway go on yes yeah. go on yeah. um so anyway this later story and it's just this touching moment where his friend so his friend takes him to the beach you know or whatever and he's going to leave him alone he's going to leave borges alone but he, so he, his friend goes off in a distance but watches him because borges is blind right so you don't want to make sure your buddy doesn't get in any trouble and he notices that borges is pointed in the wrong direction and so he has to go back and say no 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 the ocean's over here and then I'll walk away again and there's just something very touching about that to me and how difficult it must be to be blind um you know just you can't uh, anyway I also think that there's something to be said about being born with uh, blindness and then also uh, emerging into it. Right, right. But it is fascinating. He has the kind of mind that I imagine he put himself to learning Braille. and and, He uh, never really learned Braille. 
okay, so how so, is he able to read? I yeah, suppose you'll, so you'll tell he me. Would have, yeah, he would have friends read for him. He would have people come oh, read, wow. read to him and for him. And now when he finally went fully blind, he was famous. And we're going to get more to this. Like, he he was a, like, everybody knew who Borges was. Um, and so he would have people come and read to him. But his writing process was fascinating. So as he was fully when he was fully blind in the 50s of 1953 and after his writing would be to just sit there and just go over in his mind over and over and over and over until he got it just right and then he would dictate it to somebody once once he had once he had memorized it and had it exactly what he wanted in his head um just a fascinating approach um and and what you'd have to i mean what you got to do something. You can't write anything down in a way that's meaningful to you, right? So um, <clears throat> uh, there's something else that happens in 1938 <laughs> that is of significance. Um, and this is that he has basically a a, um, a mystical experience. And <clears throat> I'll just read the description of it. Because um, there, there's some details in here that I want to make sure we get. Okay. <clears throat> Um, Christmas Eve, 1938, <clears throat> Borges had gone to fetch a girl at her apartment, um, some five blocks from where he lived in order to accompany her home for dinner with his mother. The elevator was out of order, so he decided to run up the stairs, but in the poor light, he knocked his head against a newly painted, uh, casement window that had been left open to dry. Despite receiving first aid, the wound became poisoned and for a week he lay in bed with a high fever and suffering from insomnia and hallucinations. One evening, he lost his power of speech and had to be rushed to the hospital for an emergency operation in the middle of the night. He had developed septicemia, and for a month he hovered between life and death. When he recovered, he feared he might have been left mentally impaired and might never write again. He decided to uh, write something he had never done before so that he would not feel so bad if he failed, and this led him to write Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote while he was convalescing from his illness in the summer months between January and April 1939. Now, Pierre Menard is one of the first two or three stories he wrote in the great collection we're going to read in the Bookends Reading Club. Um, it's a story about a guy who decides um, he wants to rewrite Don Quixote and not just write it by like transcribing it. He wants to have the full experience of like, embodying miguel cervantes and then writing it right it's a very fascinating uh, read yeah hmm. it's very very interesting and it, it gained a lot of attention when it came out is very it, there's nothing quite like it at that up to that up to that point it has like literary comparisons of passages from um uh uh the original cervantes quixote and then the new one by pierre Mernat, and the words are exactly the same but the interpretation of them is totally different it, there's some cool little tricks he's pulling in there and it's a precursor to a lot of this other stuff he's going to do eventually um okay uh something else happens um in uh, let's see okay so i think i'll just read this part too because this is a big this is a big deal Borges starts to get, excuse me, he starts to get his first, he had some jobs working for magazines, but this is his, excuse me, this is probably his first real job. <clears throat> it was very likely his father's plight that jolted Borges into seeking a full-time job for the first time in his life. And I just said that he was 38 and had no ed uh, educational qualifications whatsoever, not even the Swiss baccalaureate 
when he was in school in Geneva, he didn't graduate. Um, um, he, uh, he now found that the best he could manage by way of earning an independent living was a post as a library assistant in the municipal library service. He becomes a librarian. Um, his salary was a measly 210 pesos a month, though sometime later through the influence of friends, it was raised to 240 pesos, a miserable, miserable wage all the same. On his first day at the library, he was surprised to find that there were some 50 of us doing what 15 could easily have done. He was put to work as a cataloger and soon discovered that the library's holdings were so meager that cataloging was unnecessary. He set about doing an honest job of it anyway, but the following day he was taken aside by his colleagues and re rebuked for working too hard. The cataloging hey, job... See, we got a sweet deal here? <laughs> Come on, man. Exactly. Exactly. The cataloging job had been planned to give them some semblance of work, so he he must ration the number of books he classified each day or they would all be out of a job. So he wrote. He went to work, worked for an hour or two a day, and then what? he wrote and read. It's perfect. Jeff I love it. Perfect. perfect. Yeah. He is. He has found himself where he belongs. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I wish the salary was more, but I mean, hey, yeah. you're working an hour or two a day, and then you're able to write. Yeah. Hey, he's man. Getting, you know, he's getting it he, in. And, and he could sell some of his writing, too. It's not, he wasn't a uh -huh. nobody, right? Like, he, right, his right. work would get published in journals and things. Right. So, and, and this is back yeah. before that was entirely worthless. You know, right. like, this is when, <laughs> this is when, like, you could sell a short story and, put a down payment on for a house right yeah, right 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 yeah. yeah um okay so now we're into the early 1940s nothing is happening in the world in the 1940s of course um that's sort of my joke every time world war ii comes up uh borges um <laughs> hated the austrian corporal as much as anybody mm. um sure. he called for the austrian corporal's annihilation in the journal called Sir. The journal Sir was a big deal in Buenos Aires at the time. And Borges's allegiance to something called the SADE, which was the Argentine Society of Writers. This is the long-standing writing writer society in Argentina, made uh, made a decisively anti-Hitler turn. Um, and Borges went along for the ride with this, right? He he just thrust him back into the public scene in a way he his his influence had been waning. Um and uh this movement, the the SADE and its its very Hitler anti Hitler turn, would kind of spawn a pro axis nationalist movement that assembled a writers' union of its own. So now you've got two writers' unions sort of competing for supremacy over fundamentally over one side's on the Allies side and one side's on the Axis side of World War II. Right. So mm -hmm. World War II is happening in Europe, but it's also happening in like the Palermo neighborhood of Buenos Aires in a way, right? But it, it, geographically, they're tucked away on the other side of South America. Mm -hmm. Obviously, everybody has to have an opinion about it, but right. they right. are fortunate in that sense. And of course, mm -hmm. later, the Austrian corporal would relocate with his entire cabinet to Argentina. Uh, I, I saw that on YouTube. Yeah, that, where they where they remain to this right. day, I believe. That's what I've heard. Yeah, there are tunnels <laughs> to Agartha, right down there somewhere. Please, if if you if yeah. you uh, feel differently, uh, be sure to get at me <laughs> at Art of Dark Pod on Twitter. Hey, 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 hey! <laughs> oh, that's that's Brad. But you can tell go tell Brad about the tunnels right. and uh, the Antarctic base and all it. the rest of it if yeah, you got a good link if you got a good link send it my way right but this this um, is before they relocated to argentina yeah. Okay. yes yeah yeah um okay so 
he's back in the public scene. He's part of this SADE, which is like being part of like the National Writers Guild or whatever. And it's more one of its most prominent members at this point. 1941, he puts out The Garden of Forking Paths, which is the first half of fictions. The um, um, combine it with artifices and you have the book that came out called Ficciones or Fictions in English. Um, the Part of the issue here, it's worth noting, he puts out this book groundbreaking work. I mean, this is where the Library of Babel comes from, the, the story Garden of Forking Paths. Um, this is where Tlan comes from, the Pierre Menard story. Ground, absolutely groundbreaking, exquisitely crafted work. It wins none of the national awards because the damn nationalist totalitarians are in charge, right? Um, and and what like that? What is political? What's what's more politicized than literary awards? Uh, um, a PTA <laughs> meeting, right? <laughs> There's probably less bias at a PTA meeting than there is in a room judging who to give a certain <laughs> prize too. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Mm. Um, okay. Let me read, let me read this bit. <clears throat> um, this clearly was a time of reckoning for Argentina and Borges would rise to the occasion by challenging the gro growing totalitarianism of the regime and the cause of cultural freedom. In the latter part of 1944, he decided to publish a collection of the six new stories he had written since The Garden of Forking Paths. The title he chose for his new book was Artificios, which was in keeping with his belief that fiction constituted an artificial orba autonomo. But it was also a title that asserted his right to be as politically disengaged and cosmopolitan as he pleased. The scandal over his failure to win a national award for literature two years earlier had made Borges one of the most prominent of the regime's intellectual opponents. And his friends in the SIR group and at SADE were alive to the possibility of exploiting artifices for political ends. It was the communist writer Enrique Amarim who came up with the idea that would maximize the political capital that could be made from the publication of Borges' stories. He proposed that SADE create a prize of its own and award it to Borges. The latter seemed to have been quite happy to go along with this maneuver, and it may well have been Amram's proposal that influenced his decision to reissue the Garden of Forking, Forking Paths, the object of the earlier controversy, under the same cover as Artificios, in order, as it were, to add fuel to the fire. This double collection then, then was then called Ficciones, an unpolitical a title as unpolitical a title as Artificios, and one that, under the circumstances, would make the likes of Hugo Vlast, some guy, doesn't matter, uh, see red. The book came out on December 4th, 1944, and several months later, it duly received <clears throat> the Grand Premio de Honor uh, that had been specially created for it by the SADE. So that book feels unpolitical completely when you read it. And yet it was used as a political weapon, basically, to to, you know, essentially remember when um, we found out that the CIA was uh, paying for abstract expressionist modern art. Yep. Do you remember, you know, I story? do remember that. Right? So we mm -hmm. could point out to the Russians how free we were. Nothing like that happens now. <laughs> that's what happened. It's all with, pure. That's, that's what happened with Ficciones. It was used as a fascinating. It doesn't, it doesn't make it a bad book. I hope you're taking book. notes out there because if you've got deep pockets, first you got to get over to patreon.com slash art of dark pod. You got to, uh, you know, email us, uh, art of dark pod at gmail.com. Throw money at us at, at, at your podcast nobility. You have to mm. 
mm-hmm. fallen nobles at this point. But right. all of that said, like it, yeah. it, you can put together a fifty thousand dollar writing prize mm-hmm. and a committee of let's say like minded people. Mm-hmm. You could do this. Nothing mm-hmm. stopping you from doing this right now, and this can have an outsized influence on the culture. Absolutely, yeah. Just I saying. mean, we're still we're we're talking about fictiones right now. Stop! I didn't even know about any of this it. Stuff. Yeah. Start getting getting the funds together to mm-hmm. support artists with direct material rewards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this yeah. is this is this is funny. There, there's you know on Twitter and things. There's I don't know somebody post. There's a there's a frequent thing of like posting some fresco from the the Renaissance, being like, why doesn't anybody paint like this anymore? And the answer is because nobody will pay for it. That's why they're not nobody paints like that anymore. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Did you ever remember yeah. the Medici's? It was a, a right. whole cartel whose half their purpose right. was to pay. Yeah. For not only will they made. not 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 only will they not pay for it, but they they don't assign status to the the artist. The artist right. is considered a content creator. Right. And right. it's like no, you have to return stat you know status to the arts, mm-hmm. uh, a res- a respect for it as craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also, yeah, you got to pay. You got to pay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is yeah. America. Pay me. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. So anyway, Ficciones comes out. It wins this award, and he. It's clear to pretty much everybody in the Ar- Argentine intellectual intellectual sphere, even I think the people who were against him politically, like, oh, Borges, like, really dropped something on us here. Like, it took a while to process what had happened when this book showed up. Um. But he's. Now he's getting nudged into the spotlight once again. Um, and, you know, so things are really good for him on sort of the literary scene. And remember, he wanted to redefine or define what Argentine Argentine literature was. And now he's basically done it in a certain way. Um, and yet he's still going blind, right? He's still heartbroken over this Nora Lang woman. Um, he lives with his mother now, whom he loves, but who basically controls his life. He was never able to stand up to her. Um, and this defined his inability to sort of stand up and act more broadly, right? So so you know, it's not a per it's not perfect. he didn't he didn't win everything, right? Um, nonetheless, well, that's, he, he, that's a very tough road to hoe. There's a mm-hmm. lot going on there, yeah, 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 for sure. Um, Nevertheless, he moves forward in the next round of stories, writes the Aleph, which we mentioned the title, the the, the title story from, but it has a number of other great stories in it. Um, starts trying to write a, a a longer work that he referred to as a novel, but when it came out in the 1970s, it was only 40 pages called The Congress. Uh, just interesting. Uh, never wrote anything very long. It's the longest thing he ever wrote. It's like 40 pages. Um uh and yet uh oh he he um he does meet some other women. He courts a woman who basically implies, though she might have been joking, that he had to have sex with her before they would get married. He asked her to marry him, um, and she basically said yes, but we have to have sex first. And he like couldn't do it. He like couldn't bring himself to doing it. Um, what uh, was that? Some sort of moral guilt, I, I, or no? I think he just couldn't. I think he's afraid. I think oh, he was goodness. afraid to act. I think he was nervous. Uh, I think he was anxious, yeah. according to Edwin Williamson, anyway. That was um, the one thing that wasn't in his Olive. Yeah, right. Mm. It wasn't in there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it, other than uh, he, he, it's hard to say. It's like, it's not even clear from the biography. It's not even 100% clear that Bohr has ever had sex. Um, now, 
he does refer the last poem when Nora broke up with him, the last poem he wrote for 14 years had something about um, uh, prostitution is heaven for people who live in hell, um, which seemed to imply that he might have been visiting prostitutes. But mm. there's like no clear there's no clear person that he ever had sex with um, um, that's no. suggested kind of, um, okay. uh, mm. you know. In his so he he has this other woman he dated, but again his mother always hated the women he dated, and he he just went with it. The the woman who um, Estella Cantor, I think her name is, I might be getting that wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me, the woman that basically said, "I'll marry you if you have sex with me." She would say later that like I was on a date with Borges, and he would go find a phone every hour, and once I followed him to see who where where he went, he made a phone call to his mother. And he would just update his mother on what we were doing that night on an yeah. hourly basis during a date uh, when, when he's in his 30s and 40s. For sure. Right? Okay. Hmm. So, yeah. Now, <clears throat> so this is something, and, and again, he's living with his mother. He, he didn't stuff birds, did he? They didn't no. manage a hotel. A <laughs> no, motel. Not that I'm aware of. No? Okay. I'm aware of. <laughs> that, yeah. There is an interesting mashup to be made of Psycho and Borges where it's like, it's very much like Psycho, the plot wise, but instead of murder, it's like every room is some other weird, like mirror infinity mm. labyrinth thing. Psycho also very fam famously has a one sided knife fight. That's true. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> I never thought of it as a knife fight, but you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Never, never bring a bathrobe to a knife fight. <laughs> uh, uh, here's another thing that starts to come on the scene. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Perone. Uh, or Peron, Juan Peron. Uh, I don't know how much people know about the about this. It's a very, um, I mean, it's a it's a publicly, you know, I think if you have a good sense of history of Western Hemisphere, you're going to at least know the name. Um, he'd been, uh, he was a guy who'd been involved in a uh, successful coup. Um, in 19, I believe I have written 1973, but I'm pretty sure it's 1943. Um, which uh, the coup, the purpose of the coup is partially to avoid a principal landowner in Argentina from becoming president. Um, so Perón kind of rises up <clears throat> as a socialist populist. Um, and in 1944, when this, there's this major earthquake that claims the lives of more than 10,000 people, Perón uses this to sort of rise to the fore and become a public figure um, in his sort of heroic actions to help people. Um, Part of his rise to prominence is his wife, a radio matinee star named Eva Duarte or Evita Perón. Um, this Perón would dominate like the next 40 years of Argentine politics in one way or another. Um, uh, and, and I'm just kind of positioning him here because a lot of stuff is going to depend on Perón. And and Borges was vociferously against Perón. Like Borges was against Perón to Borges' own detriment, um, and we're going to see how that plays out. Um, uh, yeah. So okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So now, when Perón, as Perón is rising to power, Borges, as part of this um, SAD SADE network and all of this, um, he's speaking out he's speaking out in public on paper against Perón and he's also a government employee. So, so as things go on, I mean, as a government employee, should you be writing articles in the widely distributed magazines and newspapers against the government? 
Um, I don't really know, but that's what Borges was doing. And so this, this ends up happening. We read this bit from the bio about when Perón comes to power. <clears throat> um, let's see if I've got it here. Um, as a notorious anti-nationalista, Borges would have known that he was likely to lose his job. But on July 15th of, uh, I believe that's 1944, he heard that instead of being dismissed from his post at the library, he was to be transferred on promotion to another department. The exact nature of this promotion remains in dispute. In his autobiographical essay, Borges gave the following account. In 1940, I'm sorry, 1946 this was. In 1946, a president whose name I do not want to remember came to power. One day soon after, I was honored with the news that I had been, quote, promoted out of the library to the inspectorship of poultry and rabbits in the public markets. I went to City Hall to find out what it was all about. Look here, I said. It's rather strange that among so many others at the library, I should be singled out as worthy of this new position. Well, the clerk answered, you were on the side of the allies. Excuse me, what did you expect? His statement was unanswerable. The next day I sent in my resignation. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether uh, they promoted this as an insult. Like you're you're going to go be the head of the inspect. Uh, you're going to inspect the chick, the chickens, the poultry because you're a chicken kind of thing. Or there is also some suggestion that there were people in um, close to Perón who liked Borges and thought let's let's get him let's we're not going to get rid of him let's get him another job and they thought that this was actually doing him a favor in some way um mm. whatever the case borges took it as an insult um that well and, and pulling him like, out of the library uh, yeah where well, he can write yeah right right exactly um uh okay so 19 this kind of leads to after this he he gets you know encouragement from friends and things like this he's put out the aleph he's put out his his great collection of works ficciones um but in 1947 he with perone in power um he comes into probably the driest writing period um he ends up moving into the humblest home he's lived in so far right that all that great old family money it doesn't last forever right um and remember, we have to always keep in mind until 1953, the world's just getting a little darker for him all the time. Literally, he's losing mm. his sight slowly, slowly, slowly. One failed romance after another as he's hitting approaching 50 years old, right? It is really wild how money just slips away. Mm -hmm. It is such a, an enigma. It seems like the most concrete thing in the world, but mm -hmm. it it's a mystery, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. worthy of uh, Borges it story. is yeah mm -hmm. yeah you could yeah. right right yeah the right. dollar bill that um actually one of his last stories called blue tigers is about these stones that just reproduce inexplicably <laughs> and it's sort right. of like yeah. sort of Fiat. like money yeah but yeah. then it disappears mm -hmm. so like you'll pull some out of your pockets and you don't know if you're gonna have five or 50 or perfect or what yep. yeah perfect yeah. yeah i've had nights like that yeah oh yeah <laughs> right? yep yep <laughs> um uh the so i just give you a little bit of sense of this Perone period uh it's kind of crazy. Um, they did some, th they did things all over the map. This is where I was saying as an American, like peak peeking in on Argentine political history, it's, it's hard for me to locate myself. Um, they nationalized companies owned by the French and the British. It was a lot about trying to get European influence out, right? Which is understandable. Um, they nationalized the central bank and got out of debt with the British. They expanded social security. They increased wages. They tried to avoid entanglements in the cold war by treating both sides as allies. 
uh, the U.S. ended up placing embargoes on them for that. Um, overall, this leads to like escalating violence. Perón is a populist, um, he, but he's also mad with power, right? His wife, Evita, was maybe well-intentioned. It's kind of hard to say, but what she really did was played to the poorest of the poor as a sort of a, a almost like a Christ-like figure to her, right? She was, she could almost like work miracles. Um, uh, and, you know, but at the same time, she was living very luxuriously and they would later auction off her belongings and it was just endless clothes endless jewelry and you know um while talking about the there's a class of people that were literally it translates in english to the shirtless she would always sure. speak about the, the shirtless right and she's yeah. got you know yeah. a mansion well and these are these are clothes. socialists right socialists yeah, in a yeah. palace yeah, yeah. that's always yeah, they're fun. Pal they're, they're I like, palace, I love socialists, palace right? socialists yeah. very good I like yeah, that. He, yeah, Perone yeah. would be and Perone would be described at one point as a right-wing socialist, which interesting. is interesting. Um, yeah, which well, that's, again as an yeah. American American peeking in, we're like I that that's like an oxymoron. Well, it, sort of. I mean, it's the you know, the Austrian corporal. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what it is. Right. So, right. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Um probably what pushed things over the edge <clears throat> uh at least culturally was amidst a economic crisis because all of this stuff nationalizing everything you know expanding everything blah 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 of course it's going to lead to an economic crisis of some kind especially when we try to do it all practically simultaneously right um uh avita dies um she was kind of the public heart right um uh and then <laughs> uh after she dies perone has a relationship with a teenage girl and his plan and he plans to then also legalize divorce and prostitution which tarnishes reputation with the catholics and you can't not have the catholics on your side in south america not for long um on 16th of September, 1955, a nationalist Catholic group from both the Army and Navy, led by General Eduardo Lenardi, uh, General Pedro Arambaro, and Admiral Isaac Roja, uh, led a revolt from Cordoba. They took power in a coup three days later, which they named the Revolucion Libertadora. Perón barely escaped with his life, leaving Nelly Rivas, his teenage girlfriend behind and fleeing on the on a gunboat provided by the uh, <laughs> uh a paraguayan leader right 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 and yeah. then uh, overhead there's a neon sign that says the world is yours right scarface <laughs> right uh, it has it has right. those vibes i mean he's it not does. you know yeah. slinging slinging yeah. coke but yeah, yeah wow yeah. I had to flee my, not me, right. I'm parode here. I had to right. flee my teenage girlfriend <laughs> on a gunboat. Gun yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, you know, or else I will be killed by yeah. the people executing a military coup. Right. That right. is a, that is a bad, tough day at the office. Tough day at the office, for sure. Man, I hate Mondays. When the coup, <laughs> why couldn't you do the coup on a Friday? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. 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 Now Perone gone. Now we got a whole sea change. Borges is a major figure. He's won the national right national prize. Uh, he's been an outspoken critic of Perone. So his side won. They make him director of the national library. Now they're like, all right, Borges, you'll be the director. Right. So, so he's, he's a major, he's a major player. Now I'm going to read this, this brief bit, um, about him at the library. <clears throat> 
Borges, uh, excuse me, Borges did what he could to assist the revolution. As director of the National Library, he sponsored several me measures intended to overcome what he saw as the narrow-minded Philistinism of the Peronist regime. He sought funding to expand the National Library's holdings so as to repair the damage done by the petty nationalism of the per Peronist er uh, era. He would shortly revive uh, La Biblioteca, uh, the defunct journal of the library, and he instituted a program of lectures by distinguished speakers committed to the cause of intellectual freedom. Right. Um, so he was really he was really trying in this job. Um, he's got love affairs that come and come and go in this late period in the 50s. Um, in 1960, he puts out a book of fiction that that Aldous referred to as the uh, it's called The Maker. And then in 1961, this is where Borges catapults to fame. All right. Borges is awarded, along with Samuel Bucket, the inaugural International Publishers Prize. Um, this is a prize put together by six different publishing houses, each in a different country. And the idea is they're going to award an author Um and then what they do is they give you the author 10 grand and then they publish his or her books in France, Italy, Germany, Spain, England, and the US. That right. is extremely cool. And by the way, this is what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. you, yeah. We could still do this. It right. just takes right. money. We yes. need we need patronage yeah. to do cool ideas like this. Go yeah. on. Yeah. So he gets this award in 1961. Later that year, he's teaching, he teaches for a semester at University of Texas at Austin. Then he's off to lectures at Harvard. Hook em horns. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> All day. Yeah. What? He went yeah. to UT? Sweet. He went to UT. He taught there for a semester in 1961. Throw it up. That's yeah. where we, we wouldn't uh, know each other if it weren't I, for the uh, great University of Texas at Austin. Yeah. All yeah. day. It was, okay, was cool. it, was, it was cool. That was like the first place he went to. Like, it was like, huh. All right. I talk a yeah. lot about go gophers in Minnesota, but yeah. Texas doesn't come up quite as much, probably because no. neither of us are living in Austin right now. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeehaw, baby, yeehaw. let's yeah. go. I'd like Let's to go. imagine him with a cowboy hat, you know. Real yeah, that'd be a lot real, of fun. Yeah, you know, hours, Nick Murtry yeah. hanging out. Yeah, or, yeah <laughs> right, that'd be right. cool. Yeah, I didn't get him much about like what happened while he was there, unfortunately. But um, I but he also good barbecue. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. They, well, they got good right barbecue on. in Argentina, I think. Yeah, they um, do. Yeah. Um, he did lectures at Harvard, Yale, Columbia, the Library of Congress. He goes off to Europe. Um, he travels a ton for a guy who's, I mean, at this point, he's 62. He's blind. His mother, who's 20 some years older than him, has to come with him as an as a, assistant, right? Um, by the mid 1960s, Borges is the most famous person in Argentina, right? Full stop. Um, he's basically a household name in Argentina and rapidly becoming one worldwide, especially maybe not every household. But, you know, if anybody in the house has got an English degree, they know who Borges is. Um, you know, DFW talks about the fact that uh, he grew up and there was a, a copy of Labyrinth, which was a UK edition of a sort of greatest hits of Borges short stories that he read. And he quickly learned that there was a year in England in the early 1970s where it was the number one selling book was Borges's Labyrinth. Um, that's that's wild. Yeah, so yeah. he's killing it, right? Um, yeah, and he would get stopped. I mean, he, at this point, he's getting stopped in the street by the mid mid 1960s. Um, now, as we said, he's living with his mother. Now, while he's the most famous man in Argentina, he lives in a small two bedroom apartment with his mother and their maid. Um, I mean, he needs somebody around. He's blind again. Um, 
his mother's not only his traveling companion, um, she also aids him in his dictation and his editing. Uh, somebody would refer to it, uh, a friend of his would refer to it as she, he, a friend of his who'd seen this happening, her helping him with his stories, referred to it. It was like watching a mother help their child with their homework. Oh, wow. It's very like patronizing and kind of. I have to say, like, though, I'm so glad that he made it in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. I'm right. very happy for, for right. our friend uh, right. Georgie here because yeah. he seems to have suffered a great deal for this. This did. did not come easily for him. No. And, yeah. And, and, and it's like he didn't get anything else. You, you know, he didn't get they had some money, I guess. But like he didn't get he never got the girl. You know, he never you know, he missed out on so many different experiences. Um and but you know, and his mother, interestingly enough, his mother was very proud of him because not only was he sort of famous, remember, she was obsessed with the family honor, the the prestige of the family. Now he's the most well-known writer in the country. He's the director of the National Library. Um, he's a well-respected man around the world. I mean, what kind of pre- the, it, we're not, you know, we're not saying the name of his grandparent, his grandfather. Nobody knows the name of his grandfather. We know because we just did this episode. But, you know, you know, but but everybody knows the name Borges. So she's very proud of him. And I think this probably helped the dynamic to some degree. Um, Eventually, she couldn't go on trips with him, though. I mean, she was born in 1876. You know, by the late 1960s, she can't be schlepping off to Cambridge, you know, for weeks at a time. Um, She does travel with him, though. In her 80s, she gets to tour the world which is pretty cool um but eventually it becomes clear she's not going to go and the decision is well we have to get borges we have to get georgie a wife this is the this is the solution to this we'll get her a wife he ends up getting married to this woman named uh, elsa milan um a woman that he tried he courted back in the 20s that nearly never came and it came to anything and the idea is that she's going to take care of him on his travels and now that he's a prominent man you know i assume the idea is that he's going to take care of her financially i'm assuming that's basically what the arrangement is um this does not go well she does not fit in with the literary friends of his she does not understand why they're going to the places that they're going to she doesn't really understand the whole writing thing to be honest um so it doesn't really it doesn't really last um but as this is kind of coming to an end, it's miserable for Borges. You know, he's dependent on her. Like, there were a couple times where they went someplace like Texas or whatever, and she was supposed to take care of him. And then, like, she's just gone. And he's just like a blind man sitting alone in a room in a, you know, foreign city. Right. You know? With one of the most sophisticated brains that's ever right. existed. Right. Yeah. Like, with all like the a literal... ideas rattling around. A genius. Yeah, a literal genius just sitting in a bedroom, like not sure where the door is, you know, Um, crazy, right? Now around the um, sometime in, sorry, the um, in the 60s, late 60s or early 70s, he, uh, oh, he's also given a professorship at the University of Buenos Aires. And as part of this, he starts a, he wants to learn Anglo-Saxon. And so he starts a group of students to come and they'll all kind of learn Anglo-Saxon to, to read old English poetry. Right. Um, he brings these, he brings these people together and there's a girl in there named Maria Kodama. This is a girl of Swiss, German, English, and Spanish descent and a Japanese father. She's born in 1937, nearly 40 years before Borges. And this would be the woman that he loves in the end. This would be the Beatrice, right? That he was always looking for, Maria Kodama. Now, um, 
she is, uh, you know, after all of this, he, it's, it's, it's sort of heartwarming that after all of this, he gets this sort of chance with this woman, right? Um, they have to kind of keep it under wraps because he's so famous that it would be scandalous. She's 40 years younger than him, right? It would be, it would be plastered on billboards and newspapers. And so for a long time, they basically pretend that mm. she's his literary secretary. Um, ah. He has to fool his maid. He has a very, the maid is very nosy and picky. And so he can't just have her over. Um, this is the yeah. makings of a play. It really yeah. does. Yeah. Or Hayes yeah. in a room blind, his mother's coming and going, his young yeah. lovers coming and going, right? The maid's right. Yeah. coming and going there. There you yeah. go. There's your play, your yeah. chamber play about Borges. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. It yeah. could be quite interesting. Right now. I'd watch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And now most of this happens. I, I, I glossed over, um, mother died in 1975. Um, 99 years old, right? Oh, um, well. And this this allowed this allowed Borges to 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 bring the relationship with Maria Kodama more into it. Would never would have happened if his mother was around ever. Uh, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that yeah. changes the the play a the little play bit. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure uh, good old Borges probably has his mom's voice ringing in his ears oh, though. Yeah. Even when she's long gone. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um. Now they would. It was kind of a tricky relationship. They would travel together a lot. So she was his traveling companion and helping him out. They ended up having this interesting, like, they both fell in love with Iceland together. They went there, I think, um, they might have been on a layover the first time. But they ended up loving it. They were informally, quote unquote, married by a pagan Icelandic priest who was, like, supposedly, like, the last practitioner in Iceland of the old, of the old ways, right? Mm. And this is something I don't think I, I noted as much. Borges was obsessed with England, with Europe. He had, oh, sure. he was partially English. His grandmother was English and he loved the language. He loved the literature. One of his favorite poems, I wish I had it at my fingertips, was from like 900, the year 900, written in Saxony, right? Mm. Um, he's, he, he loves this stuff. He loves the cool. Norse mythology and all of that. Um, Very fun. And yeah. Um, so, so Iceland was hugely important to him, right? Um, getting there and, and sort of seeing it and feeling it and smelling it, talking to these old pagan, this guy who believes in the old, the old, old ways. Um, he saw Iceland too as this sort of weird like survivor, like it hadn't grown with the rest of Europe, but it was still European. That's kind of how he saw it. So it was like there were still remnants. It's like you could go, it's like if you could go to an island and there was still a dinosaur living there. That's kind of what Iceland was like to him, but for the cultural traditions of very, of very old Europe. I feel like that whenever I go into a Midwestern Perkins. I feel <laughs> yeah. like I'm there's some something holding over from like the 80s or the 90s at every Midwestern yeah. Perkins yeah. where you can get a you can order pancakes and then they'll ask you what kind of muffin you want with your pancakes. <laughs> right, right. It just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. I'm in a section now, Kevin, called Final Decade. So we're getting there. Um, okay. Uh, all right. So, yeah. Okay. There's some political stuff going on here for sure. And most of that we're saving for the after dark in which we're going to answer the question why didn't uh, Borges, I forgot for a second what his name was. That was weird. Why didn't Borges win the Nobel Prize? Okay. So some of this political stuff we're going to say for that. And it's going to be, I think it's going to be interesting. Um, some people are going to basically accuse him of being uh, a word that gets thrown around a lot now that starts with an F. Not that one. The other one. 
Okay. Uh, but one thing he's doing in his last decade is writing a lot. Here's just from the last 10 years. Uh, a book of poetry called La Moneda de Hierro, a book called Dialogos, which is interviews, uh, a conversation with another writer, um, a book of letters called What is Buddhism, uh, a book of poetry called History of the Night, uh, Prologos con un Prologo de Prologos. I don't I wish I knew what Prologos meant. Uh, Borges el Memorosio, which is another book of conversations. Rosa uh, Rosa and Azul, more uh, short stories. Um, that's also called Blue Tigers in English. Um, a book of lectures. Uh, another book of lectures about uh, Thousand One Nights. A uh, book of poetry in 1981 called La Cifra, Nuevas Enseos Dantescos, a book of essays on Dante in 1982, um, and then three or four more other, three or four more books. He's cranking out a book like every six months or so as a six seventy something year old blind man uh, of ill health. Right? Um, Very cool. It. I respect. It, right? I respect that. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> um, now he's he's always wanting to marry officially Maria Kodama and she's always putting it off. She says she loves him. They've finally agreed to that, but, but she sort of doesn't want to do it because she's very sort of strong willed, right? She's very wants to be in her own. She doesn't want there to be any confusion about why she got married to him. She kind of doesn't want the scandal that's going to come about it, but she wants to spend this time with him. She wants to be with him. Um, there's, uh, yeah. So, and then you got to think the other side of this too. She's a young woman, 40 years younger than him. He's basically on the backside. I mean, we're not talking about a guy who got a lot of exercise, right? I don't know what the diet situation is, but his 70 is a hard 70. <clears throat> I'm getting that impression. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't see him in the corner doing squats and planks and sit-ups right and no yeah right mm. right yeah right um so his body's kind of failing him again this is the thing <clears throat> you know maybe it's none of our business but we don't even know that they ever made love right um uh he has to pretend for years that he's not in a relationship with her as we said um and the country in which he is sort of the cultural head is increasingly in shambles. This is another part. His fate is in his fate cannot be disentangled from the fate of Argentina in a certain way. Yeah. That is so funny because we all live with that, but it's yeah. like the more famous you get, the more intensely it becomes connected to this thing that could yeah. fall apart at any minute. Yeah. It's really yeah. Yeah. quite something. Yeah. To become yeah. political is a real thing. It is. Yeah. 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 Um, between, uh, and here's just an example between 1976 and 1983 or so, Argentina had what's called the dirty wars, uh, which were basically a war of suppression by a military uh, junta, which tossed out the Peronists. So they, to get rid of the Peronists, it's like you have to send in um, the, the wolves to get the snakes out. Right. Um, and then now the wolves are in charge. Uh, uh oh! What happens? Well, you start throwing activists out of airplanes, and you start burying people in the jungle. Um, you start tearing, you know, cutting babies out of pregnant women's stomachs. Oof! And okay. it gets it gets ugly, right? Yeah, yeah. I've Very, heard about this this period. Yeah, this right. is where the the disparacitos come from. Thirty thousand people basically vanished. In most right, of and this were. is all. This was covered in the Bolaño episode as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. yeah. So this is this is all happening now. 
The trick is Borges had supported the junta because he wanted Peron out. He wanted the Peronists out. And he supported the junta for a little too long. And we're going to talk more about that in the after dark. Um, Okay. Now into the 1980s. Argentina does have a brief period of stabilization in the 1980s by the ele- in the election of this guy named Raúl Alfonsín, who's been called the father of modern democracy in Argentina. And so Borges feels sort of stabilized. He's got Maria Kodama in his life. Things are going pretty well. Um, he's writing, you know, he's writing once more. He's got this energy because he's got he's got his Beatrice, his guiding influence and muse. He has his country's doing okay, so he feels like he doesn't have to fight for his country anymore. Um, and the you know he's getting honors continuously paris united states he's invited to lecture everywhere he goes to japan he uh in a book uh he and uh maria eventually collaborate on a book where she takes the photos and he writes the text it's like a travel journal called atlas and he says this about this period in the 80s maria kodama and i have shared the joy and wonder of finding sounds languages twilights cities gardens and people all of them distinctly different and unique. These pages would wish to be monuments to that long adventure, which still goes on. So they're having this kind of lovely moment, you know. I'm happy and, for him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't nice. seem like a bad guy. No, uh, he's not. And he yeah. clearly has was gifted beyond measure mm-hmm. and shared mm-hmm. it with the world, uh, mm-hmm. even despite yeah these problems so yeah that's yeah. good that he he finally has this despite all the the darkness and yeah no literally, when he, met, yeah. When he mm-hmm. met maria kadama i was like oh this is this is so sweet yeah, and you can always say age discourse and all of this but it's like it doesn't doesn't feel like a factor here now in uh let's see in what year was this 1983 he writes this thing called the confederates <clears throat> i'm gonna just read a bit about it we're getting very close here um the fruit of Borges's intricate reflections on, quote, the possession of yesterday was the Confederates, which is actually might be better. The Spanish is Los Conjurados, which I think refers more to the conspiracy or something like that. Anyway, this is a poem he would rec- come to regard as his political testament. Written sometime in 1982 or 83, it has as its basic conceit the idea that since 1291, the year in which several cantons came together to form the Swiss Confederation, there had been a, quote, conspiracy afoot to build a tower of reason and firm, solid faith in the heart of Europe. The Confederates or conspirators are men of diverse races who profess different religions and speak diverse tongues and who have taken the odd decision to be reasonable to forget their differences and accentuate their affinities. There are 22 cantons at present, uh, but tomorrow the entire planet will be composed of such cantons. It may be what that what I say is not true. Let us hope that it is prophetic. He's basically saying to Argentina, we should be more like Europe. Europe doesn't have a junta every 10 years. Europe doesn't throw out everybody. You, you know, we should be like the Swiss is what he's is what he's trying to say. Yeah. The Swiss are a model people. It is highly unusual. Having mm-hmm. spent a couple of summers there, it's a very interesting, curious mm-hmm. place that I, I will never understand. <laughs> they they tried to explain how it works to me, yeah. and uh, no, right, so, right, right. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you got to pace your juntas. Right, right, right. right. Once a if century. there's a, if there's been a junta in living memory, yeah. Don't have another. Maybe one. don't have another. Junta. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And and Borges, you know, he has these weird things. Like he he goes from being this person who's like, 
all about the individual, right? All about democracy. And then when Perone is in power and, and they can't get Perone out, he's like, we shouldn't have the vote. We're going to just vote that guy in. Like, he sort of like thinks that you can't have, you know, he has this point where he doesn't think you can have democracy until you get to a certain level of cultural sophistication, right? Uh, that was some, his take. Some still dare to stay right. as much in the group chat. <laughs> and <laughs> right, right. I, so I've heard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It is, it is an interesting idea that we do as an article of faith except that like you like the universal de democratic ideal is mm. the ideal and any yeah, alternative it, it to it questioned. is totally regressive it is a matter of faith it is like mm. the ideological machinery operating in the sky right. and if you just zoom out a little bit and start to question it it creates all sorts of <laughs> little tangles right little problems yeah yeah, yeah. in any case for sure, for sure. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about his politics. Remember, why didn't he win the Nobel Prize, right? Um, okay. Uh, now, as the new, you know, okay, so we had that Raul Alfonso guy come in. Even that didn't last because he couldn't really stand up to the situation. And again, you could just feel this cycle. It's like, okay, things are good for a minute and then they're bad again. And he's sort of at this point in the mid-80s, early to mid-80s, he's sort of done with it, right? Um Borges is um, now he's being hounded by paparazzi, um, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. To And apparently Argentine paparazzi at this time was intense. There's a story in the biography about some Argentine politician. They somebody had gotten photos of him in his hospital bed and they put it on billboards. Just because it was like an embarrassing photo. Of right. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. you can imagine you're not you're trying to not get caught up in all of that. Sure. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And he's 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 basically married to a woman 40 years younger than him. So he, that's a scandal. Scandalous. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Um, OK. So anyway, because of all these factors, he, Argentina, he's basically given up on Argentina. He loves the Swiss. Um he starts thinking about Geneva. They'd been visiting every time he'd gone to Europe. Remember, he basically grew up in Geneva or his 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 formative teenage years were in Geneva. And he'd taken to visiting Geneva every time he went to Europe, which was often now. Um, it occurs to him that despite his romantic frustration that at the time in Geneva, that that was the best of his life, right? And I think a lot of people think this, the teenage years were the best years of my life. Um, and, and you can go on to do great things past that that are better but there's something about that period where everything is novel, everything is interesting, right? You don't, there is a magic to that, to that time period. And so he's yeah. nostalgic for it, right? Sure. Um, and so in 1985, he starts to put a plan into place. He makes a new will that leaves Maria Kodama as the sole heir to everything. Um, the housekeeper had been previously been bequeathed half of it, but she'd been too nosy and kind of ticked Borges off, honestly. And so he cut her out of the will, except for a little bit and like $1,600 or something. Um, Borges gave up his space in the family mausoleum. I'm not, I'm not getting buried in the mausoleum. He gave up his role. He, he, he gave up his role as like a member of the family, basically. Um, he's basically, he, he, he thought that the, the sword, this is the sword of honor. He's just basically saying to his mother, he, he finally is making his act of rebellion against his mother that he should have when he was a kid, except she's dead now and he's an old man, 
right? And it's kind of too late for it to matter in some way, but he's sort of fighting for his last scraps of I'm I'm George, I'm Jorge Luis Borges, right? I'm not a member this, of the Borges family. This is right? a guy who thought a lot about symbolism. So exactly, exactly. Some, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's staging his final bit in 1985 july is diagnosed with cancer of the liver he keeps this a secret from basically everyone um and because he wants to do something that he that according to edwin williamson biographer is going to be a commentary obvious to argentina as a country to his family to everybody and he decides that he's going to die in geneva and he's not going to die in buenos aires now he doesn't tell anyone that this is the plan he doesn't tell maria kodama that this is the plan um i got a little bit to read and as you can tell we're very close to the end here um okay um yeah let's see if this is right um um okay so he he does have a trip to europe that's official right but but what people don't know is he's gonna stay It appears that Borges was curiously evasive about his forthcoming trip to Europe. He made no mention of it to Estela Canto, a friend of his, when they lunched together shortly before his departure. Another friend claimed that he had promised to tell her about a visit to Japan he was hoping to make after his trip to Italy and Geneva. Vilma Colina of the magazine Somos, who was at the exposition at the bookshop, reported having heard him say that he would be returning to Buenos Aires at the end of January. But other guests remember him calling out as as he left, I won't be coming back. And Roberto Alfano, who spent the morning of November 28th helping him revise the poem 1985, would later claim that they agreed to meet again the next day to finish the task and that Borges gave him not the slightest hint that he was booked on a flight to Europe that same evening. Why was Borges playing his cards so close to the chest? There was a practical reason. As with his cancer, he must have feared that the media would get wind of his plans. But there was, I believe, a further reason for his reticence. Since he was planning to give the story of his life a particular form, he would not have wished to reduce its dramatic impact by revealing it in advance to other people. They get to um, where they're going, wherever they're going in Europe, and then they're just going to make a one or two night stopover in Geneva at this hotel. And with maria and when they're there borges says i'm we're not leaving geneva we're not going back at all and he basically just explains to her that i'm going to die here um he would had been unable to talk her into he tried to talk her into it earlier and she hadn't wanted to go but she didn't even know about his cancer then so finally with the cancer in geneva he gets maria to commit to two things stay here in geneva with me until i die i'm gonna die could be a couple weeks, could be a year, but I'm on my way out. Stay with me here and please finally get married to me. And she goes along with it to get, get to getting married with him. There's some legal wrangling that's required, but she goes along with it. So, so he spends his last bit of time in Geneva with the love of his life, trying to create, he wants this sort of peaceful little capsule in Geneva to finally pass on. Um, I, I think... That might be it. That might be, well, how long? Hold on. Let me give you one thing. So, um, oh, this that's right. That's right. So uh, 
because they still find out Argentina still finds out about this right that this is this is happening rumors leak out it comes out that he's married to Maria Kadama they have to have press conferences to explain this to the Argentine people because they start everybody starts to hate Maria Kadama she's just in this for the money right she's just in this to get after his riches and all his prestige and he's leaving everything to her they have to settle all of this and and it even even at a distance, this peaceful capsule that they've built in Geneva to to live out the final days still gets kind of punctured. Um, but he but he has these final moments and he has a lot of time sitting with Maria and talking. They have some writing projects they're working on, but you kind of know it's the end. You're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna bust your hump every single day when you know it's kind of over. And um he starts asking a lot of questions about the afterlife. He starts thinking a lot about, you know. Do you, is death complete? Is death really the end? Um, and he consults with both a Catholic priest and a, and a Protestant minister. And when he dies, they, Maria Kodama puts on a, a ceremony. I think it's a Protestant minister in a Catholic church or a Catholic priest in a Protestant, in some kind of Protestant church. It's some kind of mix up, which is a perfectly Borgesian thing to kind of do as his final ceremony. And it's extremely and important to that you you don't so you don't know was it in a Catholic church with a yeah. minister or was it because I don't think a Catholic church would permit I don't know I, I don't know there, I I should have I, yeah, I should have no, nailed no this no down. it's fine you don't have to nail it you know and, and yeah. you'll have time and you you can clarify it on the after dark if you can f- yeah. figure it out okay. on after yeah I think but it's that, in here that yeah. is wild man so it's all mixed up yeah oh yeah yeah and I think that's I mean I think that's. And that's something Maria Kadama put together. And clearly he'd gotten, he, he, uh, he hadn't become a Catholic on his deathbed, but he was clearly willing to bring that influence back into his consideration of things. I think he died as he lived some kind of agnostic mystic, um, comfortable with being completely uncertain what was ultimately going to happen. Um, but he he had to uh, be buried in in Switzerland. He wanted to die in Geneva. Yeah, I can under I can understand that impulse, by the way. Yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. a symbolic move, right? Because partially, what he's saying to Argentina is like, "Yeah, I'm a son of Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires. I'm a son of Argentina, but like, I've given up on you guys, and that's Oof. that's heavy, man. Right? That your most heavy. famous person in your country left, deliberately abandoning you to die in another country. It's a it's a powerful move, mm-hmm. you know." Yeah. So that's the story of Jorge Luis Borges. Um, yeah. Fabulous. Thank All you, right. Aldous Asterian, for joining yes. us and for riding along. Thank you, Brad, for all of the preparation that you did. Sure. And thank you, all Kevin, of the for passion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thank me. you for listening thank along me. and keeping it entertaining. Oh. I love doing Art of Darkness, and I Mm want to thank, we got to thank all our listeners. We appreciate you, Patreon folks. We extra appreciate you. The financial support helps us. At at this point, it's helping us buy books Mm -hmm. uh, at the very least, and that, and we buy a lot of books for the pod. We do. So a lot of fun. We got to kind of wind down here. We're going to come back in the after dark. I know you Mm -hmm. got some good stuff we're going to talk about yeah. the politics the nobel we're going to talk about the uh romanche language yeah and, uh, yeah roman romanche language <laughs> in in uh die schweiz and yeah. uh yeah and then we'll also talk about that that fact that point at the end that you uh, you know weren't certain about i'd be yeah. very curious yeah I'll that find that after out. dark that would be yeah. super cool yeah. uh good times brad how All do you right. feel 
you feel like a weight has been have you now that you stared into the olive yeah for yeah. four hours uh how do you feel i know you've got a little more to do but it always feels yeah. like when you're kind of done with a core episode you're like Ooh. yeah there's a certain sense of relief just because it's it's there's a lot of work goes into you know putting this together so you can just rattle it off right and so right. um yeah so you know yesterday and 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 today a bit and you know just chipping away at it and be like oh I, I, did i get that right detail and blah blah blah. right, right. and then you finally get it and you're like ah, i don't have to think about there that. it is it's in the yeah. can and it's gonna yeah. go out on the internet at artofdarkpod.com and wherever you get your podcasts a lot of mm -hmm. fun brad who are you preparing yeah. next because i've got i've got lenny riefenstahl oh so. that's right lenny riefenstahl, lenny riefenstahl. Yeah, yeah i believe oh. my next one is andre tarkovsky okay all film, right we, film, we're going mm -hmm. yeah very good we're going to the old world now yeah, yeah we just did yeah. a couple of americans we did True. Marilyn. yeah we did uh Borges yeah and now yeah. okay I'm gonna I'm gonna do Lenny and you're mm -hmm. going to do Tarkovsky yeah cool should be good so looking forward stay to stay tuned for that yeah. I'll ask you because yeah. you poured over this guy yeah uh what, what's he doing now yeah see I think he just keeps I think he he yeah. if he I think is he just, alive today in yeah. his prime what, what is, is he doing, doing now yeah. I think he's I think he keeps writing poetry and short stories and I think the short stories get shorter and short like I think he's narrowing in on like the sentence he could be tweeting I know we <laughs> say that for a lot of these writers but yeah. like imagine Borges just yeah. on on yeah. fire with, with a just image. like fire threads yeah yeah, yeah. just yeah. killing it yeah very yeah, interesting be. dude i mean but mm -hmm. i mean you know and i wonder if he had lived another 10 or 20 years and seen the internet come into being what his brain would have done oh my god the right. dawning realization of how it would change the world yeah it's infinity it box yeah he would have yeah yeah, yeah. interesting amazing stuff, for mm -hmm. sure all right well all right let's uh, what what sort of sound does it make when you open up the olive what? <laughs> 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 <laughs>